All right, wait till I get my hands on this Richard. He's not going to know what hit him. There he is. Richard, do you know what my gripe with you is? Yeah, please tell me. So you you go to a prestigious law school, University of Chicago, right? So you're a law grad. You're trained in, in law, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah. Now, I'm just a layman. I'm a peasant. Mm. I didn't go to law school. You know, I can read a court filing. Maybe I can reason as an amateur. And even I, despite my lack of credentials, correctly surmised that when it <laughs> came out that there were 34 charges, that was the big report, right, ahead of the indictment being unsealed, that there were 34 separate charges against Trump, that the all signs pointed to that simply being a maneuver by the prosecutor to individually divvy up each discrete transaction into a falsification of business records charge. Whereas you, with all due respect, you had these grand notions of how, <laughs> you know, maybe Alvin Bragg had the smoking gun all along, you know, maybe Putin transmitted him the evidence of collusion after all this time, something. But no, it turned out to be the most banal explanation, which was the most plausible one, at least as I figured. So I'm just wondering why, why it is, it, it, since we're, so since you're the uh, prediction guy, I'm not into that, but I'll indulge for now. How do you, how do you, what do you make of that? I think it's just my trademark, you know, trust of, um, of you know, uh, law enforcement and established institutions. I don't know. I don't think the 34 uh, uh, counts made it more likely that it was um, nothing, right? If it was one count, we knew it was Michael Cohen. I did not think that it would be this week. I mean, this is really, this is really bad. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, this is well, really bad. Well, this what were you like, anticipating you know, and how did it, how did what happened know. contradict like, your does? assumption? Like, we didn't know. You're always the one always saying we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's in this document. Wait and see. You know, I well, we didn't know, but there was also really no evidence that there was going to be something more wide ranging. Really, I mean, again, you're right. Who knows until the thing is in our ability to actually read. Yeah, I mean, you but, always uh, say you always say we don't know any. I mean, you always say we don't know any. I'll be like the New York right. Times reported X, and you'll be like, oh, how do we know? What does that mean? That might not mean anything. So. Yeah, yeah. I was I'm, no, I'm, I'm a very annoying person. I admit that. No, it's okay. But I mean, I, I'm uh, dis- I'm disappointed. They they uh, they made the Trump show fun, but they uh, you know they, it's just they, they he's like uh, what is this like season six or something? And like the storyline has really opened up for how he gets back to the White House. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really I mean, they're really you can see what the writers are doing here. I mean, it's you know the nominations looks. You know, look very highly likely to be his, and then uh, you know, there's a good chance that he actually wins the whole thing again. And it's like you can see exactly every step of the way how this uh, what happens. Every other charge he gets now is going to be in the shadow of this. This looks like a joke. Everybody- yeah, it's like season four of Lost. Ever watched the TV show Lost from like the 2000s? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. Well, there was a big. Uh- sort of thematic shift. I think it was at the end of season three, beginning of season four, when the the device that they had used throughout the whole show at that point was a flashback. So there would be real time, most of the show would be in real time on the island, right? But they'd have flashbacks for each individual, individual character. Then all of a sudden, it turned out that they were switching to fast flash forwards 
And it blew everyone's mind who was watching it. I was watching it in real time. I can still remember leaping to my feet. And so that's pretty much the analogy for what Trump uh, was uh, handed on a platter. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I hope it doesn't, yeah, I mean, it's almost too predictable at this point if he uh, wins, the, wins the election again. We're hoping some kind of drama in the meantime, I don't know. There's so are you, are you disappointed about this in part because you're one of these people who, even if you're not overtly declaring it, you know, you pretty much want DeSantis to prevail or at least you don't want Trump and you're, in all likelihood, you would be inclined to support DeSantis as the Republican nominee, and you think this now lessens that likelihood? Uh, I mean, Trump is just Trump is just so entertaining to me. I, I just can't, you know. I, I you know what? After the abortion stuff this week, I had some tweets after the uh, Wisconsin. You had an race, abortion this week. I almost- <laughs> I was thinking about the abortion stuff this week, and you know, because of the Wisconsin uh, race, which is the Dem- Republicans got creamed, like they've been getting creamed in every election since like Dobbs came down. And I just think, like, you know, like I don't know how I don't know how Republicans will win anyway in twenty twenty four. Like maybe Trump is the only way that the election is not about abortion, right? If, DeSantis, if it's any conventional Republican, if it's DeSantis, uh, I think abortion is going to be the big thing. I don't see how Republicans win Wisconsin or or Michigan or Pennsylvania. Uh, I think they'll go. I think they'll go down. Trump, at least, is like you know, it's just like it's you know, it's just like twenty twenty. He'll probably start saying like you know, he's been blaming like pro lifers for you know twenty twenty two. So he'll probably say some stuff that's like you know, going to be distancing himself from that. So it's the only way. You know, I'm starting to think Trump is like the only way that you know, the abortion issue. Well, yeah, and this sort of gets to why I find a certain sort of strain of punditry among conservative opinionators kind of irritating where they just have this conceit that DeSantis is so obviously more electorally viable than Trump, even though they really have no basis for assuming that at all. Because if you actually examine the observable record, uh, it happens to be the case that Donald Trump for the first time of any Republican since 1988 in 2016 actually won the three critical Midwestern states that they had to win Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, right? So he actually has an established record of doing that. Yeah, he didn't win them in 2020, but the margins were pretty thin. And I think it was like only around 60,000 votes that ultimately swung the Electoral College. There's no reason to believe, at least as an article of faith, that somehow DeSantis is going to be able to generate that same level of turnout among factions of the Republican electorate who were specifically energized and sort of activated by Trump because Trump has unique assets as, you know, a celebrity, somebody who's funny, somebody who maybe has a slightly heterodox spin on kind of traditional Republican policy platforms. DeSantis, I mean, the, the idea that, that, that DeSantis automatically is just assumed to be able to supersede Trump's electoral um, appeal is just wish-casting by Republican pundits, conservative pundits, who don't want to be associated with like the baggage of Trump anymore. We're always going to be a little bit embarrassed with him anyway, even if they had to sort of accommodate themselves to him. And even if they want to like uh, incorporate some of like the so-called America first ideological program, they don't want him to be the emblem of it. And so they concoct all these nonsense post hoc arguments around how you know, it's just so obvious to anybody who's saying that DeSantis would be the stronger candidate in a general election. I just don't think there's any grounds for... Including that at all? Uh, I think that 
DeSantis is maybe or maybe not a better, maybe, maybe or maybe not a better candidate um, in 2022. Uh, what, what are, you, are you eating and like tossing items around and what's going on? There's like a, is there a <laughs> tornado? Eating, yeah, I'm eating some almonds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's, listening to you ch- ch- uh, chomp down on almonds, it's uh, okay. I'll really... save it. I'll save it. I'll save it for you when you go uh, when you go back. But uh, the um, uh, so Trump and DeSantis might you know who knows uh, who's better for twenty twenty four. But I think that what Republicans think about tr- Trump is he's bad for the party overall, and that like. You know, whatever happens in 2024, like 2026, like when there's a midterm election, like having Trump around is bad because Trump has a hold over the party. And the kind of people he draws into the party tend not to turn out when Trump is not uh, on the ballot. So like Republicans have had like a few bad elections now uh, with, you know, since Trump became like the standard bearer, right? 2018 and 2022, which they did terribly for. Uh, given the I don't agree with that. I mean, we've talked about that before. The Republicans have a majority in the House right now. I but still like they should have done they should have done that with one head tied to head behind their back given yeah. uh, given given the fundamentals um, you know there's these uh, you know there's a swing to these things you can't just look at it in isolation uh, and so Democrats I, lost I, seats, I, I, seats in the Senate in 2018 that was never used to declare that Democrats had a failure of a performance 2018. in 2018 people don't even remember that. 2018 was a terrible, I mean, Senate map. I mean, they won West Virginia. They won Montana. Well, it wasn't a great Senate map, maybe, for Republicans in 2022. I mean, there there are sort of uh, quirks and sort of uh, anomalies with every election cycle. So Yeah, I mean, we can look, but we have to look at the thing as a whole. So the, I think the argument is, um, you know. The Ross thing, I admit, that was a huge, was a huge self-implosion by Republicans. But other than that, I mean, I think it's a little bit of an overstated how much of a horror show that supposedly was. But anyway. So good. Oh. Where'd you go? Richard? Yeah, yeah, oh, no, I thought I'm you were still, completing I'm a still here. Um uh, ho- hold on one sec. Okay. Richard has serious business to attend to. He probably has to examine like FBI crime data, maybe some um Genetics, uh, uh, you know, flow charts that sort of map out the demographics of some obscure category of, you know, sociological phenomena and kind of intersperse that with crime and then come up with a really incendiary conclusion about what that supposedly Portends okay. for I'm I'm back. Uh, America. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, what was I saying? Uh, I was saying that it was uh, it's going to be. Uh, so I think that like the idea is that basic. Uh, and then you have the 2023. Uh, you have this. Uh, you have these this last election in Wisconsin. You know these off year elections. Republicans have also uh, done very poorly in too. Uh, so you know the argument is that like Trump like maybe is a good president, an okay presidential candidate, but like terrible for the party overall. And I think that I think that's. I think that's uh, you know, reasonable belief. Uh, I think that's also a fallacy, though. I mean, in 2020, Republicans gained seats in the House and in the Senate, if I'm not mistaken, even though Trump lost by 60,000 votes total in the Electoral College. So Republicans actually made gains in the House and Senate in 2020, um, notwithstanding the 
president that, who ultimately won was uh, a Democrat. So that was also sort of a mixed result. Um, and part of that was because there are um, places in the country that are especially suited to Trump activating portions of the electorate that otherwise would likely not be motivated to turn out in such significant numbers. So, you know, these are quintessentially sort of like, you know, Appalachian, uh, sort of the downscale whites or the, the, the uh, symbol that I usually point to electorally for like what demographic this is, is the um, second congressional district of Maine or is the first, whatever the congressional district of Maine is that's in the northern part of the country, because Maine is one of the two countries along with Nebraska that allocates its electoral votes by congressional district and Trump in 2016 and 2021, that northern district that is more rural, more downscale white, etc. So just extrapolate out that demographic that Trump overperforms with to different parts of the country, and you can see why Trump might overperform. Trump might generate additional support for a congressional Republican candidate that you know a name your other Republican would not. Um, so I just think there there are trade offs. I mean, of course it's so are. it's it's but weird. No, it's, no, it's weird. It's weird. It's weird that people could just say, "Oh, Trump's a liability." The guy who did who achieved what was considered at one point the unthinkable, and that he won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. He's the liability. But you know, I don't know uh, Nikki Haley or Asa Hutchinson. I mean, or DeSantis because he won in Florida, which you know that's a significant electoral accomplishment. I don't doubt that, but like. Trump has one of the most sort of remarkable electoral accomplishments in American history, maybe the most. But he can just be like dismissed as a liability. It's just odd. Well, I mean, the, uh, the you know, I think the problem is this demographic you're talking about that uh, Trump uh, uh, mobilizes. They are, um, you know, they don't turn out in midterm elections. I mean, I think that's that's we have two midterm elections and we have these uh, elections, too. And it's a really, really bad record. I mean, there's not, you know, this is not, you know, I think you, you disagree with this, but it's just, it's just, it's just wrong. I mean, the Republicans should, the Republicans, because of their, the way Trump. Which party controls the House of Representatives right now? It's the, the Republican Party by, a, you know, a few, uh, a few seats and, you know. It hasn't and, been a problem for McCarthy to wrangle votes. Every, the margin every, is the margin. Every, it's the same margin seat. Democrats had the previous Congress. We have eight, we have like 80 years of, yeah, but that was because they picked it up, they picked it up in a, uh. Uh, that was a, that was a presidential year. We have like eighty years of the president getting uh, the president's party getting crushed in first term midterms, right? Um, that's just the norm. And then the economy was also the economy was bad. Biden's approval. Well, no, we small. don't. Two thousand. You you for some reason you've extra, uh, blocked the two thousand two midterms from your brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, like a, yeah. One at nine eleven. Okay, we have a nine eleven. We have and, a nine eleven. Well, election. and you have nineteen eighty two. You have 1962, I believe. I mean, it's okay, not that you anomalous. One, you have one one every two decades where a uh, president that is isn't term uh, doesn't do that bad, right? Um, they usually they usually do bad, and and Biden's approval rating was low. I mean, it's also the president's approval rating is like a you know big thing, and like you know a very unpopular president in a midterm election. Um, you know, it should should it should have been much better for Republicans. They lost every competitive Senate race. I mean, every single one. Um, yeah. They should you know. They, that is true. You think they would have? You think would have? They they won but the they won, a, they, they won a they won a fair amount of competitive. And on the state legislatures too, by the way, the state legislatures too. They got they got creamed. They got you know, they lost control of a bunch of state legislatures. They won they like four them. Senate. They won like four House seats in New York State that really were not. Okay, even yeah, seen yeah. As in they, 
California as well. New York State. Florida? Yeah, New York State. I mean, California. Yeah, they barely, I mean, they got killed. It was like the worst state legislator performance, you know, I think in the midterm in a very long time uh, for the party out of power. So this was just bad. I mean, this was just bad, uh, you know, just from a historical perspective. And, you know, you could say this is, you know, you could say this is Trump. You could say that. Um, You could say it's Dobbs. I think it's probably Dobbs more than uh, more than Trump. Uh, but I think those Trumpian, Trumpian candidates didn't do uh, didn't do themselves any favor. So this is a theory. This is just the theory for DeSantis, right? That like yeah. when, Trump, when Trump is around and there are non-Trump elections, uh, that's bad for the Republican Party. Right, but the next election coming up would be a Trump election. Yeah, it would be. And then like in quick, quick anecdote, quick anecdote on that. On the day of the midterm election last November, I was in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. All right, so this is Luzerne County. It's one of the hot spots for that. You know, kind of sweet spot of a Trump demographic. And I was in the hotel talking to the woman who was just working behind the uh, check-in desk. And I asked her if she was going to vote. And uh, she said, no, I don't think I'm going to vote. But if I, if I were vo- going to vote, I'd, I'd vote for Trump. So she thought that Trump was on the ballot in the midterms. Like, she didn't know what election really was even happening. But if she was going to vote at all, it would be for Trump. Like, she wasn't really, she wasn't going to figure out how to go about voting if it was just for Republicans. She doesn't care about Republicans. She was going to vote for Trump. And yeah, I do think that there is potentially a decisive percentage of the electorate for whom you're right. Trump is going to be the beneficiary of their turnout, but not just the standard Republican because they're not really partisan Republicans. They're incidental Republicans because they support Trump. But not a Republican in any other respect, really. Um, and the idea that DeSantis is just going to be able to, again, cultivate that same demographic in the, in the way that Trump did, which was, again, electorally critical in, in causing him to win 2016, again, it just, it just seems incredibly far-fetched, or at least it's nowhere near established beyond that there's certain conservative pundits who, you know, like the sensibility and ideological sort of uh, maybe priorities or governing style of of DeSantis, and then we'll just manufacture an argument for why DeSantis is somehow more electorally viable, even if it really has no good basis for it. Okay, well, I mean, going back, uh, uh, you know, adding to just what I said about the the off-year elections, you know, 2024, yeah, but there'll be a 2026 election, and Trump is the... uh, uh, president, you know, that's different than if DeSantis is, is the president. Um, but the, I think the, um, uh, I think the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, I think, yeah, I think you're, I mean, I think you're right. that Like they think DeSantis is going to like do the things that they, uh, that they basically want to do. I think the other thing is that Trump's ceiling, um, we know what a ceiling is. Like he might squeak <laughs> out another victory. Uh, he might do that. Uh, Baby, not thrilled that. about the prospect of Trump. <laughs> yeah, she'll get over it. Uh, Trump uh, might squeak out another victory. There's no way you see him like winning the popular vote. I think him winning the popular vote is like impossible, right? Well, there could be a recession or something. Who knows? Oh, yeah, there could be. You're right. There could be some unusual circumstances. DeSantis, you know, if he lives up to his full potential. Biden could die and he uh, could run against Kamala Harris and then it's a blowout. <laughs> That's true. That's that would be a blowout. But but basically, uh, 
But basically, DeSantis, like, might, if he's, like, as good nationally as he's been in Florida, which, you know, is a possibility, uh, but he just runs, like, a good politician, and he seems smart, he beats Biden on the debate stage, it's realistic that, like, he wins, like, a comfortable, uh, you know, he wins a comfortable victory, and then, like, you know, carries the Senate and House with him, but Biden just, you know, ends up looking terrible and, you know, is in bad shape. So I think that's, I think that's one thing. I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, the ceiling for DeSantis is higher. The floor, uh, the, ce- uh, the floor of Trump is higher and his ceiling is lower. So Trump is like, I think if Trump's right. running, he's either going to barely win or barely lose, probably. While DeSantis, there's the possibility of like, he does really well or does really poorly. Yeah. Biden might have to uh, run remotely from a retirement home in Kiev. Um, <laughs> okay. That, okay. That, was, that, was, that, was, that was a totally incoherent joke, but I don't know. I just had to b- b- vomit it out. You felt like, um, like a Fox News host. Yeah. You felt like um, Ukraine, <laughs> let them take him. So, so when you saw this indictment, I mean, one of the, question, one of the uh, points that's been put to me about the reasons for why this particular indictment was brought against Trump was that you'll have these kind of like maybe a slightly more paranoid right-wing types who aren't like 100% irrational but have a little bit of that sort of paranoid uh, slant. They'll, they'll, they'll say stuff like they brought the they'll, – like they'll refer to whoever brought the indictment as this amorphous they in that it's like this network of Democrats who calculated that they want to either give Trump a boost at this point or – harm Trump at this point or there's some sort of devious strategy behind why the charges were brought or there's some coordination I, I, I don't really see any good evidence for assuming that my uh, operating theory as to why this charge was brought is because you know if you think about the legal milieu that Alan that uh, Alvin Bragg inhabits and the political pressures that are attended on him. There's been a fever pitch, seemingly, in that office, Manhattan District Attorney's office, for years to bring a charge against Trump. There have been cases pending for uh, since 2017, um, and you know there's a just psychic desire to have this release where even if it doesn't result in a conviction or even gets thrown out, it's almost just a win unto itself for like emotional purposes to just get Trump in the courthouse and have him technically under arrest. Um, and then you can use the protraction of the trial potentially, or like the uh, extension of the schedule for motions or whatever as sort of a lawfare tactic where, you know, there's maybe certain of the items that are in that statement of facts get more elucidated. And, you know, there's like salacious stuff that, makes Trump look bad and like they go and, um, you know, call to this, they do like additional deposition or something or call to the stand like these other, there's another woman, Karen McDougal, I mean, who cares, who also had some liaison with Trump and they could just use it as sort of a well of material to draw from on on Trump and that's going to be kind of in progress indefinitely. And, And so like even, again, it could be, it could totally collapse as actually a viable case to obtain a conviction, but there's utility to be gotten from just the existence of a criminal case against Trump at all. And I think that, if I had to speculate, I don't know, I'm not in the guy's brain, but it seems like that seems to me a plausible, at least partial explanation for why it is that, despite the flimsiness of the reasoning 
underlying these charges, it almost doesn't even particularly matter because it still achieves like the political and emotional impact that they had been desperately craving for so long. Well, you started out sort of like saying like, oh, they're, uh, you know, this amorphous them, and you're like sort of mocking these people for their, you know, uh, sort of... Well, I'm talking about the district attorney's office of Manhattan specifically. That's the day I'm talking about. But then you switch to, yeah, I know you're talking about the district attorney's office, but then you switch to like sort of thinking that they are sort of, you know, thinking in terms of, oh, this is going to hurt Trump. Maybe, maybe not. I think they're probably... Or tarnish him, you know, the blemish him. Maybe. I mean, the thing is, they're always, um, it is always like, uh, I mean, it's, just, it's always like, you know, it's silly. Like, I think when someone starts talking about the amorphous them and what they want, I mean, I think that's a good, uh, you know, I think that's a good reason to sort of tune yeah. someone out. There was a like, while where everybody who was like in the more paranoid oriented, like pro Bernie or like anti Democrat, but vaguely left-wing sort of contingent of online commentary, they would always talk be talking about the DNC as if the DNC was this, like, uh, Illuminati or something, rather than, like, you know, the, just the central party committee of the Democratic Party, like, in Washington, D.C. Like, they, they, in other words, they, they ascribe so much more, like, metaphysical power to the DNC than they had. Not that the DNC has no power, but they it became almost this, like, um, this... Uh, metaphysical construct in their in the way that they perceive American politics. It's sort of weird. Yeah, so, I mean, this is like a big, yeah, so you'll see this all the time. You'll see, like, oh, they want Trump to be the nominee or they don't want Trump as the one man they fear. Um, you know, I do think, I mean, I don't know if maybe we disagree on this, I do think that Trump is probably guilty of some crimes. Uh, not, you know, this one is like a technical Which ones? violation that, you know, uh, I think that the Georgia phone calls uh, were pretty serious. But what crime did um, he commit? Uh, there's something I, I, for, I, I looked into this. I forget exactly what the statute is, but there is something like there is something. Like, but they're going to have to create yet another novel legal theory. Whatever. Well, it's got to be novel because we've never had a tape of a president calling right. the secretary of state and say, "Give me, you know, rig the election, <laughs> find the votes that I need to win." So yeah, there's not going to be a precedent for that. Uh, I think the um, in the classified documents one, they're charged. They they obtained a search warrant, the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, by citing a provision of the Espionage Act. Yeah. Well, did you see the which is absurd? They might, not, they might not get them on the uh, classified documents directly, but did you see the Washington Post story about the um, obstruction of justice thing? Like they told he told the government that basically they had all they had it all for the documents that they have a witness saying that Trump like went and got the documents later and then like had them carried out and had him like had himself look. So there seems to be a, might be an obstruction. I think I clicked on that, but then as I was reading it, like my internal uh, narration in reading it just for myself turned into the Charlie Brown adult noise with like the nondescript trombone sounds. Because like at a certain point, I'm just, I'm just, I can't process all these like breathless, Updates around like the legal minutia of all these disparate cases. It's just been too much for too long around Trump that like I don't know. I just sort of make a uh, calculation as to what amount of that information is even worth attempting. Well, it's to I mean, it's basically consider. an obstruction thing. You have a subpoena. You, you do like something to like you know like uh, hold back evidence yeah, yeah, yeah. or like make sure that they don't get it. I mean, that's a, you know it's a common thing. It's not like a new thing that. Well, he's going to have a field day on that because Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton bleach 
bleached her bleach bitted her, so she basically purged that private email server she had after receiving a subpoena from Congress for the server. That's true. That was never seriously pursued as a criminal charge, although, you know, if a prosecutor really wanted to, they probably could have come up with a theory to justify it. But get ready to hear lots more about Hillary Clinton and James Comey and the, the never-ending whirlwind of 2016. It's still engulfing us even today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that. I mean that. Uh, yeah, I, I remember the details of that. It's, yeah, I mean, that seemed like plausible case for obstruction. I don't know if there's a difference there, but yeah, I think you're, you're, you could be right. Um, you know, that doesn't mean, uh, that doesn't mean the Trump thing isn't real. Um, and then the, uh, yeah, so between that and that, I think, I think one of those, I think at least one or two, probably both of those are probably going to come down and it's probably not going to hurt them. I mean, people I think are going to be seeing it's all political, uh, at this point. Um, but yeah. Another aspect of Trump's argument is, and I think he even said this in the press conference thing he gave from Mar-a-Lago the, after, the night after the indictment went down. He's basically saying, look, everybody, you got to vote for me because I'm the only one who can stop World War III. Now, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I'm not even 100% sure how to evaluate the veracity of that claim. But I also can't out of hand, dismiss it as totally meritless. I mean, if Trump is actually true, uh, true to his word, in that he would, the minute he takes power, let's, if it were, let's say he was just transported to the White House today and he was the president, and he would actually diverge starkly from Biden administration policy and use, like, use the obvious manifest leverage of the U.S. in the Ukraine war to require, essentially, that negotiations commence. I don't know that he's wrong. I mean, and uh, Biden is also considerably more bellicose in rhetoric and policy on China than Trump ever was, notwithstanding, like, popular assumptions about who would be more hawkish on China, right? Uh, Biden has well exceeded. I, I even heard Mearsheimer talking about this recently, and it even seemed to surprise him somewhat. Um, so... Uh, in, on both in both theaters of like the prospective world war, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that unfathomable that Trump actually would be <laughs> is maybe the only option to forestall some major uh, global cataclysm. That if he is the one who has that ability, then it seems like that's the only morally defensible choice, right? Because like, let's say it's true that he's the only one who could stop World War Three. So if the choice is a binary one between him and World War Three, then Whatever he pukes out into truth social, he's got to be the pick, right? You know, it's hard to evaluate because Trump, I think people think is a little bit less, you know, psychologically. Look, I mean, Trump hired Bolton. I mean, you know, like Pompeo could be Secretary of State. Nikki Haley. Uh, <laughs> president. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham will have his ear. Um, and you Lindsey, know, Glam, Lindsey Graham is his top cheerleader. Uh, yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he'll be. I mean, he'll be around. He'll be whispering in his ear. Uh, so, I actually saw Lindsey Graham wearing a cheerleader to... outfit with pom poms. No, I mean, come on, you're gonna you're gonna get our audience excited here. I mean, that's that's just that's just too sexy. Uh, no, I I think that uh, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so it's like it's hard to predict. I mean, Trump is sort of a psychologically unpredictable. You know, he's sort of pred- he is predictable. Like he's psychologically predictable. Like whatever he does, he'll say, you know, I'm the greatest, and everyone loves me, and you know, he'll, <laughs> you know, I'll do these things that you know are predictably Trumpist. Uh, but like, what he actually do? He can, but that's like consistent with him doing all kinds of policies, right? Everything from, you know, not fighting China to fighting China. Same with Russia. I think with China, I think it's so clear that he has a visceral like. Uh, uninterest in like the humanitarian questions that people get excited about he's not deeply um, moved by the uyghur genocide which i'm sorry i'm gonna get in trouble for this i don't think that calling it a genocide is at all defensible i think that's basically a concoction of anti-china elements that originated out of the u.s state department doesn't make sense at all to classify that thing as whatever it is and i'm not saying it's good or to classify it as a genocide i think is ridiculous and we don't have to get into that but like I don't think really Trump is going to be, you know, deeply committed to redressing that injustice in his dealings with Xi. Yeah, no, you're right. He he wouldn't be. Uh, and so, like to the and like the hot, you know, I can't imagine him caring about Taiwan either. That's the that's the flashpoint. Now, like. I mean, like Republicans do want to spend more money on the military, and like they do tend to let the generals do what they want. I mean, if you look at the Middle East, right, if you look at, like, the Soleimani killing, and if you believe Mattis, at some point, Mattis, like, you know, Trump was going to kill said, kill Bashar al-Assad, and uh, Mattis just, like, told the people not to, not to uh, uh, carry out the order, right? So it seems like, you know, like, there is, like, a tendency of Trump to just, like, let the generals do what they want. Yeah, but I think um, after a full term of experience, I'm not saying there wouldn't be any deference at all to some of these sort of security state actors or the generals or whoever, but I do think there would be sort of a body of work that's already been done that could, if he actually did want to change the governing process so that he was not being bamboozled by, you know, Amatis or whoever at every turn, he probably will have the ability to do that. Like when I was at that America, remember last summer, I was at the America First Policy Institute thing where they had like this whole blueprint print ready to go about how they were going to purge the permanent bureaucracy of these um, hangers-on who can like, you like subtly thwart the enactment of the Trump agenda. And, you know, who knows whether that would pan out exactly. I don't know. I even heard an interview maybe two or three months ago from, by um, Christopher Miller, who is the acting Secretary of Defense at the very tail end of the Trump term and he said that he had been in you know communication with trump and trump had actually changed his mind on having massive military budgets because he came to understand the graft and the waste associated with those massive uh, budget outflows um so who knows maybe there could be a bit of a change of opinion there i i doubt it because like there's a whole bipartisan momentum toward you know record-breaking military spending at this time uh, at this point that i doubt trump would like single-handedly thwart but it's a you know it's it's at least a little bit up in the air yeah trump um trump wasn't known for yeah his uh close attention to budgetary uh details of budgetary debates right um so yeah you know i think that like but like he could change again right yeah i mean that's that's the thing like he's gonna get back at the he gets back into office like you know it's gonna be funny because like who's gonna like he was already so like uh such a marginal figure like that's why he hired all these generals who didn't like have a uh policy making background he's like oh this guy looks like you know he should be a secretary of defense you know he's just mad uh, they're out of central master. casting that's what he liked you know john exactly. and they all and and they, every single one of them turned on him yeah john now, Kel- like, uh kelly uh right. mattis mcmaster 
and now he doesn't like he doesn't like generals, and he also uh, you know he still has the big same problem as before. Like mainstream people don't want to work with him. But like after January six, like he and he's broken with everyone he had in the first, like the natural people to like work with him. You know, like Bolton or or like uh, Nikki Haley. You know, they've broken with him by now, right? So he can't have those. He can't go back to those people. Even like a Mitch McConnell, to- right? I mean, how is that even going to work in terms of coordinating a governing? agenda because although Mitch McConnell was never like a natural Trump supporter but they did have like a basic understanding where they were you know more or less on good terms remember Trump appointed McConnell's wife to was a secretary of transportation or something Elaine Chow um and now that that whole that relationship's completely torpedoed yeah I mean they could all they could make up I mean they could make up and be friends they could I mean it's happened Bannon, I mean, the Trump had a thing with Bannon. So, yeah, I think the most likely scenario is he just makes up with the Republican establishment and they basically, yeah, go back to the way things they were. I think it's the most likely. I don't think he's just going to, like, hire, like, Jackson Hinkle or something. I don't think oh, he's going to, like, do that. that I will I hope he's Canada if that happens. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's going to, like, hire Twitter personalities who, like, like his foreign policy. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's going to rely on the establishment one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, last quick uh, thought or last quick topic, and then we'll go to uh, callers. Obviously, um, did you get a chance to skim that Afghanistan withdrawal report thing that came out today that the I White skimmed, House published? I skimmed your uh, your thread. Uh, yeah. I skimmed the uh, yeah some of the pictures you posted. Yeah. So it's odd, and that's maybe a generous way to describe it. it uh, apparently, this is the White House National Security Council, which is run by this guy, John Kirby, who's everywhere. He's like the main spokesperson for the whole government, apparently. Yeah, he's um, all- Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, I think he uh, presided over the drafting of this particular report because it's based on a Pentagon report that then the White House decided to put out a summary version of for public consumption because they're claiming parts of it are classified or whatever. It's basically you know, on the circumstances that led to the Afghanistan withdrawal and then obviously the Chaos that ensued around the evacuations, the you know the ISIL ISIS K or something, whatever it was, attack on the uh, sort of installation that killed what it was, was it like twelve uh, U.S. soldiers or something, whatever. Um, the thing that popped out to me, I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but they started out almost like by trying to say that they the, their hand was forced to even do the withdrawal in the first place by Trump's irresponsibility. So even though Biden was committed on principle to withdrawing from Afghanistan, they were kind of forced into it illicitly or by Trump's um, reckless uh, disregard for like a streamlined policymaking process. Um, and they even, they even, I don't, it's just so bizarre that they would have done this. They denounced Trump for emboldening the Taliban because Trump at one point like entertained potentially having the Taliban at Camp David. Remember that, and then Bolton apparently uh, vetoed it. But they're, they're basically saying you know, Trump appeased the Taliban, and that's why everything went south when we tried to do the withdrawal. It's just a ridiculous sort of logical leap. But then on top of that, they shoehorn in all kinds of Ukraine stuff. So that that's what really I found to be most glaring. Yeah, they, they say they they say that. Um, Basically, once the intelligence failure or perceived intelligence failure happened around Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul was much quicker than they had gotten word would be the case through the intelligence community, they then adopted like the polar opposite strategy for Ukraine where they, they seemed like they overcorrected and employed like far more aggressive tactics with their 
intelligence distribution. And the, 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 the most striking part of it was that they, they brag that this aggressive dissemination of intelligence in the pre-invasion period, so pre-February 24th of 2022, it was done over the, you know, the strident objections of senior Ukraine government officials that this information was being put out. The, 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 whoever wrote this report is like bragging about what a great thing that was that they flouted the wishes of the Ukraine government officials. Um, and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but I, I couldn't help but think about my working theory that I still, still na- nags at me about this whole certainty that people have around that pre-war intelligence and how it was just proven 100% right and whereas there's admission after admission, not just in this document, but in other stuff that came out around the anniversary in February, where the people who are running this InfoWars operation and not Alex Jones people, they actually call it an information war strategy. Um, that's the term they use. They're, they're bragging about how they're trying to influence events in real time. So it's not just they're releasing intelligence and then standing back as a passive observer and just uh, waiting and see. No, they're they're actually in real time using that intelligence drop strategy to actually, you know, apply coercive pressure or maybe uh, withhold pressure or basically just finagle with as best they could Russia's decision-making process in actually bringing about the invasion. So I'm not convinced that 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 whatever they thought they had to do in terms of overcorrection for Afghanistan might not have had sort of some partial causal effect on the calculus that w- was employed by Putin in actually launching the invasion. Remember in that Financial Times report we talked about that came out on the, on the anniversary as well, they, they, they indicated that it, only a day or so before the invasion was actually launched was the final decision made by Putin. So I don't know. Anyway, rabbit hole, but uh, curious what you might have thought from scanning those. Uh, ex- yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had your same reaction. I mean, it was sort of a silly propaganda document. Um, I did want to talk about, by the way, you know, we don't have uh, all the time, but uh, did you see that report about the leak uh, from the Pentagon uh, that ended up on Russian Telegram channels? No, I haven't seen that. What what leak? Oh, this was the New York Times breaking news a couple hours ago. I, I tweeted about it. Uh, okay. Basically, there's a thing on uh, Telegram, like Russian channels, that uh, claim to be, and the New York Times is confirming this is a real document. Um, that uh, like had the U.S. like plans for Ukraine. Um, it was some kind of you know planning document between the U.S. and Ukraine. The New York Times is saying it's real. Um, it has casualties, but the New York Ooh. Times is saying that like military. Analysts, you tweeted this? Yeah, I tweeted this within the last few okay. hours. Okay. And the military analysts say that the casualty figures are look are doctored, right? So they say that in the New York Times piece. But the casualty figures are 17,000, 18,000 Russian killed, uh, and then 71,000 Ukrainian, Ukrainians killed. And then the other um, interesting thing is, you know, they have like, uh, uh, they say nine battalions of like, or battalions or groups or whatever of Ukrainian soldiers, about 5,000 each, uh, are going to, should be uh, done training by the end of April. And so this is apparently for the coming spring offensive, you know, we've been hearing so much about. Uh, and so, yeah, this is big. I mean, the headline here is like that, the casualties claim. And, um, you know, if it's, whether it's true or not, right? Like the, the document is real, but the New York Times, you know, sort of uh, uh, line right now is that th- those numbers were doctored. But they, it doesn't give us any number. It's, it doesn't give us any number instead. It doesn't say, oh, the real number is, you know, X. It just says the, the numbers, you know, analysts say they were doctored. So the New York Times has a sentence in this article, which I'm 
like a third of the way through, it says Biden officials were working to get them deleted, but had not as of Thursday evening succeeded. I mean, they're trying to delete the posts that contain this American intelligence yeah. information. So is the, have you seen like the primary source document anywhere? Is that somebody in my, co- in my replies, uh, doesn't has like a, uh, you know, has the, uh, uh, Kilted action has like screenshot of some stuff. Uh, but I have okay. okay. Well, maybe some callers will have more info on that. So let's go to uh, Andrew. I don't have any information about that, but that's a very okay. interesting uh, topic. I what uh, I would say that it's odd that they're saying that the casualty numbers are fudged, and then they don't. I, I haven't seen the article, but I'm guessing. Do they say why they know that those? They just say military analysts, you know, say that they have no, wait, not wait, even wait, wait. Yeah. So what the hell is a military they're analyst? Saying, is that just a CNN pundit? <laughs> so it, it's Malcolm Nance. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. It's, <laughs> it's Rachel Maddow. Yeah, yeah, here's the exact sentence. Military analysts said the documents appear to have been, have been modified in certain parts from the original format overstating American estimates of Ukrainian war dead and underestimating estimates of Ru- Russian troops killed. So why would it do that? What a shady source why to they... Just unnamed military analysts. And why, what would the motivation for doing that be, exactly? Well, because, they, they, well, because obviously these are pro-Russian channels, and so they want to, like, make the, uh, you know, they, they want to say, oh, uh, you but know. But hold uh, on, 17,000 is inflated? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, they would. The the Russians would. I mean, they think it's like you know, probably the Ukraine is like fifty, and Russia is like a hundred, right? That's what they. That's what they're saying here. They're saying that the that the pro Russians would inflate whatever the real numbers were. They look worse for uh, Russia and better for Ukraine. It just okay. So maybe I'm confused, but this thing appeared. This thing appeared in pro Russian channels, and they're saying the pro Russian channels uh, altered it to make uh, Russia look better. So they're saying that the pro-Russian channels made the, the Russian deaths less than they actually were in the document. And they made the Ukrainians higher, yes. Okay, that's what they're saying. And they're they're just unnamed military and analyst experts that can see the document and know it was altered. Yep, they don't, they, like, they don't say what they relied on, what their, anal- what their analysis was, but, why uh, they the, made this. The wording in this article is so dodgy because they're insinuating that part of the materials would have been authentic, which is why they're even writing. Like they wouldn't, they're not just declaring it disinformation, right? Which is how they would have framed it if that was the working thesis. Clearly, some of it they're assuming is authentic, but they don't really say outright, at least in this New York Times article, that anything explicitly, they don't explicitly say that some of the material was authentic. They just kind of hint at that. It's very strangely written. Um, I think they do say. I think they yeah. do say it's off the, I think they do say that. It's okay, off the, I haven't finished it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just told you about it. So yeah, you you had to. Okay. It, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, very odd. Uh, yeah, well, example, well, well, they cite they cite this guy Michael Kaufman, who's you know cited in everything, and you know, yeah, the, the guy knows what he's talking about much of the time, so I don't really blame them. But he says the quote that they use as him as like this expert authority is whether these documents are authentic or not, people should take care with anything released by Russian sources. So he's not affirming the authenticity of the documents; he's basically pleading agnosticism. No, they say, and they even say earlier, military analysts say. Uh, parts of the documents appeared authentic and would provide Russia with valuable information. To just Which parts, though? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's something that strikes me as wrong right off the bat. 
if this was uh, the the casualty numbers were doctored by Russians, uh, they I think they'd put the casualty numbers for Ukraine way higher than seventy thousand dead. I would think it would be way above a hundred thousand. Well, the thing, I mean, the, the casualty numbers. I mean, I obviously be interested to see what they what tally they're they're using. But more interesting to me would be whether this contains more precise, like operational detail as to the intimacy of the U.S. planning of the, the counteroffensive. I mean, we, we knew that there was already a, a deep operational I mean, yeah, co-mingling, right? But, okay, but if, they, if that could be fleshed out with like actual documentation as to what that, the nature of that uh, operational coordination is, that, that's what I would like to see. Um, well, well what, what else, what else do you, is on your mind, Andrew? Well, what's been on my mind is Bakhmut and Zelensky and his contra- seemingly contradictory or at least sporadic in emotional tone to me, different comments. D- did you see where he was talking to the Associated Press and he gave as one of the reasons they, they can't afford to lose Bakhmut is that if they do, then his public, and I think this is the first time I've ever heard him say this, is that his public may push him to compromise if they lose Bakhmut because they'll be deflated. Uh, no, no I haven't seen that. I'm trying to find it. Quote, though, I would yeah. see what he said exactly. Is, it, is, the, is the article, uh, do you know what the headline is? Or what's um, the, or the date? Maybe some crack person it, in the last week. It was the Associated Press speaking to Zelensky. And yeah, any Russian victory would be perilous. Yeah, and now that, that's part of the, that's earlier in the quote, but later on he goes to give one of the reasons. And the thing that I thought was interesting was that he said, just he brought up the term compromise, that, that he may be pushed to compromise by his people, which is literally the first time I've heard this in, the, in this sense, not, not like from a we're going to negotiate from strength kind of thing, but like a I may be pushed to do something. I don't yeah, yeah, okay, so I, I found it. Here's how they, they word it in the AP article. He predicted that the pressure from a defeat in Bakhmut would come quickly, both from the international community and within his own country. Quote, our society will feel tired, he said. Our society will push me to have compromise with them. Yeah, I've never, that's an odd, that's an unusual statement. I don't don't know that I've ever seen a statement to that effect. And I've heard people say, you know, this is in link with just trying to get more weapons, right? Because, oh, just give us weapons because we, if, you know, we lose Bakhmut. But this seems a little desperate. They've never, you know, there's plenty of ways to act excited and beg for weapons without saying something like this. And as far as I know, even if that's the cause, that shows extreme desperation to start talking like this. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't read too much into it because he's always, he's been all over the place with his statements since the beginning of this thing. And yeah, and there could be like, there could, there could be a one, like he can do a 180 on something, you know, in the span of 24 hours. Sure. So, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a notable data point, but I wouldn't overinterpret it. Well, and, and that's what my point was, my larger point was going to be, it's in kind of contradiction to some of the other things he said, which is that recently he said that if it, basically, if it gets too hot in Bakhmut, the correct decisions will be made, which he's saying he'll pull out. It was in reference to the question of basically, will you leave Bakhmut if your troops get surrounded? And he said, if it gets too hot, the correct decisions will be made by the commanders, which is... You know, you, it's the Ukrainians have a way of saying things that basically means that he'd be willing to pull out of Bakhmut. And then not even that much uh, later in another statement, he said that 
you know, he'd be willing to compromise with, or at least think about uh, some kind of negotiation with Russia if they have a successful counteroffensive that pushes them back. The that Russians was a different Ukraine forward. official who said that to the Financial was, Times, I think, right? Oh, yeah, correct. Sorry, that was a different Ukraine. Yeah, I saw that. Again, I don't... Um, There's a bunch of different positions here. Here's, well, but they've always done this. There's always been this, you know, muddled multiplicity of positions that were are stated by different officials, whether as an intentional tactic to just kind of uh, muddy the waters or just because they don't have, like, uh, messaging discipline or whatever. I don't know. But here's what I'll come back to um, in interpreting any of this. There remains on the books in a, a dec- presidential decree that was issued by Zelensky in September of last year, then published in October of last year, which says that it is a, quote, impossibility that... Ukraine could engage in any negotiations with Russia, the Russian Federation so long as Putin remains in power. I've mentioned this before, I think. The clear implication being, the clear inference being, that Putin must be removed from power for, the, for Ukraine to engage in negotiations. And this is not just a fleeting statement, right, or a comment or an interview. This is written in, down as a decree that was issued by the presidential office and is still on the books and was confirmed to me at the Munich conference in February was still the pol- you know, the policy of the Ukraine government such as the Ukraine government has an official policy. So when you see all these like scattershot claims and statements and, you know, speculations, I'm, pro- you know, I think more telling is, is what is on the books formally um, because that's sort of, you know, the, uh, the guiding principle insofar as anybody can ascertain like what the core of the, the, the policy posture is. So that's what I always come back to when I hear these like, you know, random statements that maybe seem, seem uh, out of a concert with one. Yeah. It seems hard to make anything specific out of it to any one of them. And they all seem to contradict to with each other to some degree. Richard, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, about Zelensky? Just the different statements about if they lose Bakhmut, then it might pressure them to come to a compromise, but we'll also pull out if it gets too harsh, and also we'll compromise if we, or at least consider compromise if we can push them to the border of Crimea, basically. I think that... But it wasn't, um, remember, it wasn't Zelensky who said that last day. That one Crimea. wasn't Zelensky. That was some... Uh, I hadn't even heard of this particular guy. It's like some deputy minister or something. A, I, think it's, I think it's a woman. Uh I think it was a woman, if I'm not mistaken. I posted this. I posted this article too. Um, let me see here. This Financial Times story. Uh, woman, woman looking for this woman. No, it's I not a woman. It's Andre Andre Sabia. Is that a woman? Uh, well, here's the well, here's the picture of the Financial Times. I think it's a woman. Um, no, it's a man. <laughs> are you <laughs> sure? Yeah, because yeah. the, 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 the picture is the picture is like the main picture of the article. Well, well, I don't know who that hoe is, but Andre yeah. Sabia is a man. Okay, Ukraine's pretty progressive. I'm not sure we should be so sure who's a man and who's a woman. Um, you know, I was looking yeah. through. Sorry, really quickly, I was looking through this National Demo- Democracy Association, one of these quasi-governmental entities that get funding from the National Endowment of Democracy by the U.S., right, that was operating in Ukraine, was one of these, you know, constellation of organizations. One of their big accomplishments that they were touting in 2019 was that this U.S. government-funded f- f- outlet, uh, outfit, 
had um, organized the the first ever or largest ever or something ever uh, pride parade in, in Kiev in 2019. That was the mission that they were embarked upon. On I don't remember the, once before the, the war, I, there was like one guy claiming to be the uh, like the first openly gay journalist in Ukraine, and there was like a second one, and like. Both of them were like American funded, so I said at one point, you know, a hundred percent of the gay journalists in Ukraine are funded by the U.S. government. I bet yeah. you that's literally true. That's not even a joke. Yeah, I think it was. Tr- well, I mean, it was true at some point. You know, I wonder how many countries that's true for. It's probably a, a large portion. There was also a thing where uh, there was a trans. There were trans men who were uh, trans women who were not being allowed to le- cross the border, like into Poland or something. And they had, they were involved in, they were being interviewed and they had some advocacy organization affiliation that of course also traced back, you know, to the U.S. ultimately. So yeah, that's, uh, that's those yeah. detentives. But as far as the words go, I but, mean, the, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think does it matter? Or? Not everything is well, not everything is like super well thought out and not, and you know, different people in the government have different, I'm sure have different opinions. Uh, so, like, you know, what gets yeah. the headlines is so selective. Like, Zelensky, he just wants to justify right now. You know, he's doing the Bakhmut thing for whatever reason. He just has to justify it. He just has to say anything. Would it be fair to say that the Ukraine as a whole seems to be pinning a lot on this upcoming counteroffensive? It seems been doing that for to months, be the case. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean... You know, also, if, and, and if that's the case, why read too much into Bakhmut, right? It seems well, like yeah, they're yeah. probably just drawing out Bakhmut because they have to fight somewhere as they prepare for the counteroffensive, and it might as well be Bakhmut, right? I'm so, not sure why they're doing what they're doing in Bakhmut. That's the I mean, theory I've heard. And that, like, that's well, like what Michael Kaufman says, that CNA right? guy. I mean, they were killing a lot of Russians for a lot while. I don't know. Now the reporting says that switched, and now they're not killing that many anymore, but... You look at the map, and most of the city's fallen by now. It's 70%, 80% controlled by Russia anyway. The right. western side is just the – it's kind of almost over anyway, really. And if they're, but if, but if the they're just stalling of- as they await the commencement of the counteroffensive, then it doesn't particularly matter what the precise – Tactical uh, status is you, you want to fight on move. favorable ground. I, I, I guess I don't know. Where you're surrounded on three sides. That would be my I, first I don't know. thought. But I'm not a military strategist, and I'm sure Zelensky has plenty of people telling him things. But you know, it's, I, it just seems to me this counteroffensive is going to be big and coming up. That's what we need to pay attention to the results of that because I don't think there's going to be a lot more support coming from the West if it fails catastrophically. Well, I mean, in, in in all fairness, Andrew, you've been saying that for months. <laughs> yeah, but Germany's saying they're out of tanks. They're Germany's currently saying they're not going to send certain things anymore. They're basically tapping out. I mean, I'm, I might have to pull. I might have to pull up what you said in like June of last year and compare it. Okay, just to, just to hold should. your feet to the fire. Right, you should. You should. I should hold my yeah. and you should hold my feet to the fire because I'm an asshole. All right. I think I don't make a lot of hard predictions either. No, neither do I. I do repeat myself a lot. <laughs> so no, I that, I appreciate. It. All right. Thank, thanks, Andrew. Uh, Gator. Hey. How are you doing? Um, can we go back to the Trump thing? The first question. Yes. Well, wait, 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 wait. Go back to the what thing? The Trump thing? Donald yeah, just, Trump? I yeah. ne- never heard of him. Never heard of him. <laughs> okay, good, good. He's a he's, he's a no one. Um, the system update with Green, Glenn Greenwald was really good in terms of just breaking out in detail what was in the indictment. The one that to, I did. Move the ambiguity, right? The one that I was on. Yeah, yeah, oh, I yeah, really appreciate okay, yeah, the, the, the level of sort of discourse there, right? Now, the obvious question to me is, if you were preparing a legal strategy 
your lawyer's job is to provide you with an estimate of success and uh, the potential blowback of a loss, right? So given that this is clearly both multiply weak and also fairly obviously politicised, why even take that tack to attack Donald Trump in this way when there's probably more than a 50% chance it'll fail? Um, well, one theory is what I touched on, that you can just use the pendency of the criminal proceeding as a means by which to wage certain, you know, what you might call lawfare uh, initiatives. Yeah. In yeah. that, you know, there's there's people that you can call to testify, a subpoena, extract information, then, you know, that place in Manhattan leaks like a sieve, so it's going to get to some dope dopey 27-year-old, like, CNBC.com reporter in a matter of seconds. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of... Uh, it just ties keeps... up time and energy and resources from his ability to yeah. wage the campaign. Yeah, yeah and you're just, you're just you're farming information on Trump that could be used to taint him politically. I don't think there... I, I don't see there being very much that would be novel enough that it would actually cause a significant political impact. Um, but on that point, uh, I th- yesterday, I, I don't... I, uh, posted on uh, on Twitter an excerpt from the podcast of Preparara, who is the former uh, Southern District of New, uh, New York U.S. Attorney, involved in lots of high-profile cases, prosecuted uh, Sheldon Silver in, in New York, who was the longtime sort of par- uh, Democratic boss in the state Senate, etc., went after Cuomo, uh, was then fired by Trump under like, slightly odd circumstances, but he would be one of the people who, if there was at all reason he could cite to be enthusiastic about the strength of the charges that he, he would cite it. And even he had to like be, you know, admit that he was very subdued and underwhelmed by the charges and that he actually doesn't think that it reached the threshold of confidence in a conviction, which is sort of a big thing for him to say. And also even before the indictment was published uh, in the public sphere, Bolton was on TV saying, I think this is basically a crock of shit, and I can't believe they rolled it out. Yeah, Richard, what do you think about that? Because one of one political effect this has had, and I actually was on the BBC, believe it or not, <laughs> talking about this. I don't know why they had me on, um, but uh, it's it, all of the all of the Republican antagonists of Trump who were like in this litany of blood feuds that he's had for people within his administration or who he's had falling outs with, whether it's Bolton or Bill Barr or um, whoever, they're all now sort of more in Trump's orbit, right? Or, or at least they're, they're, they're circumstantially rising to a full-throated defense of Trump of a kind that they would not really have been doing but for the indictment. So I sort of wonder what the political effects of that are. Like if even a Bolton is in Trump's camp, so to say, on the indictment issue... They had like pretty much every other um, Republican who's been in a feud with him is going to probably be in the same camp. So I don't know. What do you do? You think that's going to have any? Well, it's not just significant effect. Jeff Bush and such. It's also like the New Yorker, Vox, the Atlantic. Jeb Bush said something. Jeb Bush, yeah, said that the you know he said something against the indictment. Yeah, he said it's a low energy indictment. 
<laughs> yeah. He's like, and I would know. No, yeah, he's basically said, you know, same thing all the other Republicans said. Uh, and so did the, you know, Vox and, you know, Vox had like a thing where they had this guy, Ian Milhauser. Do you know this guy? Oh, he's yeah, like who's a total like hysteric. He, yeah. Ian Milhauser was, would tweet every day that, you know, he would say, if you don't hear from me in a half hour, like I have been murdered by Trump's goon squad or something. Like, he was he was like one of those paranoid guys who thought like that he was leading some like genuine resistance of the kind in like occupied France rather than like the lifestyle brand version that they came up with in 2016. Yeah, yeah, that guy was off his rocker. So if he's even he's saying it too, that's another. He's saying there's probably he's saying he's saying you know there's questions about the indictment. Yeah, I mean this guy's on the left wing issue on every you know, every legal. Uh, issue. David Frum thinks uh, that it's BS. Uh, David Frum says don't indict Trump over this. Well, uh, that's that's yeah. that's maybe the most hilarious one. Yeah. So this. I is mean, David 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 Frum has staked his career on explaining why Trump must not be allowed to be above the law. Uh, yeah, I know. And he, there's still, I'm sure he still thinks that, but he thinks that this is not the way to do it. So, yeah, I mean, this is such a bad, I mean, this is really bad. I mean, this is really bad from the New York uh, DA. Um, and, you know, politically, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt them. I mean, you see, we see some polls already. I mean, we see the uh, immediate effect. I think this, that's before people do. Like, you know, before all this, uh, people knew that this uh, indictment was, you know, iffy. Um, so yeah, this is just so good for Trump. I mean, it right. really it, should be. Okay. So with that in mind, right, I, I watched, I'm afraid to say it, his entire Waco, Texas address, right. In order to sort of listen to. Were you radicalized? He, Did you commit insurrectionary violence? Um, I was just confused actually. Um, right. Because basically what I was looking for is him to lay out his discourse and his manifesto. And what I've found is that while he he uses his patination and his construct is exactly the same as 2016, but it's been tailored and updated in light of, you know, events since 2016. But there's, but there's a critical thing that he does, right? On the one hand, he labels people as he labels or identifies Marxist, communist, stupid warmongers, neocons, rhinos, big money, special interest, open border fanatics and the fake news media all as categories of enemy, right? And he goes on through uh, highlighting corruption of all kinds, weaponization, lawfare, all these things that have been turned against him and slags it all off. But then he goes into a contradictory phase about a third half, halfway through. And this is what he says. He basically says that Russia and China are both enemies with whom Trump still has this. Uh, he's the only one who has this dialogue based relationship. I heard him say that. He said that at the Mar-a-Lago thing after the indictment. The night yeah, of the as if, as if he, that's said, he, he repeated him, that. Right? But then he also says that he claims credit for arming Ukraine and killing Soleimani. He claims yeah. credit for the shutdown. Wait, was this the the, the Waco, Texas speech, or was this yeah, the yeah, press yeah. conference thing after the no, the whole the whole thing? Okay, well then he repeated this almost verbatim at the Mar-a-Lago thing. Right, and he said he said he claims credit for the shutdown of NS two. That coerced the EU into conforming to US policy. He claims credit for rebuilding the US military. And he, um, but he also says he didn't start a war, but he also ignored the, the impact of building up Ukraine and, and maintaining a Syrian position and still maintaining Afghanistan. Is this the first time you've ever listened to Donald Trump before? 
<laughs> no, no, but this the is rebuilding point, the right? military thing is a very stock. <laughs> but, but this is, but this is my point. On the one hand, he says he's against neocons, but everything I just described about what he took credit for is pure neocon ideology. Well, I mean, I actually did a. I happened to do a thread about this earlier today. I'm declaring a moratorium on the use of the word neocon. It's lost any analytical meaning. Um, it, people just use it to mean like uh, vaguely hawkish yeah, person. That's not what it means. Yeah, he's, he's not into that. Yeah, but 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 but, but, there are, but 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 there are, there there are so many ideological tendencies that ultimately congeal into a hawkish consensus. You don't need to be a neocon. A neocon was a tiny clique of people that orbited around Paul Wolfowitz in the White House in the yeah, first and the, Bush and the project of the New American Century. Right, but that but that's sort of like a but the, like the 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 existence of neocons was like contextually contingent on stuff that was going on in the 80s, 90s, and then early 2000s. It's just obsolete now. So I really do think people should revise their vocabulary just for the sake of precision because most of the people that are, get referred to as neocons are not neo. I mean, Trump could just be a statist or a, like a nationalist or just a generic Republican and have the same like interventionist predilections as a quote neocon and it wouldn't matter because like you don't need to be a neocon to support these premises um if that makes sense but that's well, a side yeah, issue I, I, know, I know what you're i know what you're saying i mean he does repeat that's the thing whenever trump does something he then is bound by it and then claims it's the best thing ever and what he did was he acceded to the lobbying demands of lindsey graham and john mccain in 2017 authorized the provision of lethal, lethal weaponry for the first time for ukraine and he sticks by that almost as a um Partially as a as a as a partisan uh, mockery tactic against Obama, because he says, "Oh, Obama was such a weakling that he just sent uh, blankets and pillows. I sent the lethal weapons, ha ha ha." And oh, by the way, did you see how many tanks the Ukrainians took out with those javelins? That was really something. He keeps repeating that. Now, the question I have though is, to what extent does his boast about something like the lethal weaponry actually connect to an underlying sort of policy agenda? that would actually indeed militate toward a more hawkish or interventionist direction. That's not clear because obviously he couples that with a fairly radical position by the standard of American discourse at this point, which is that he's calling for an immediate initiation of negotiations, which is very marginal of a view and seemed to be almost like inherently Russian propaganda or Chinese propaganda to even you know, entertain advocating that. So it's a, it's a mishmash as usual which has always been the case with Trump. So you have to just kind of use some level of discernment to kind of figure out like what the tentative through line is in his thinking and how that sort of uh, uh, translates to actual policy, which is very difficult to do. Okay, but if, if, he is, if he was instrumental in building up Ukraine in supposed opposition to the Obama doctrine, which said the opposite, and he is now in a position where he's 18 months away from being an arbiter of whether that war progresses. But in that time, the war will have changed and possibly even ended without his intervention. What he says about what he would do or wants to do with Ukraine now is irrelevant because he is the he is essentially. the. Well, it's not it's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant in this sense. What he says is going to be taken basically as the marching orders of at least a significant faction of Republicans in Congress. So he's basically setting the policy agenda for a not insignificant 
segment of the Republican coalition. And in the House, that makes a big difference because it's a slim margin for the majority. So McCarthy has to be mindful of placating Trump and, you know, like the 30 or so, you know, however many Republicans who are basically just going to comport themselves in direct relation to Trump's uh, stated policy views. But if, but if Trump was serious about his position of ending the war, why wouldn't he, as a former U.S. president with special special ability to talk to Putin, just ring up Putin, do something very leaderly, right, and act independently to begin a negotiation or to instigate a negotiation? Well, I mean, there's a whole ethic. or I mean, he, you think so he would just try to one-up Biden and, uh, I mean... <laughs> Remember, there, 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 well, there was chatter, I don't know if you were cognizant of this at the time, but in, around 2017, there was this whole chatter about how Trump himself or Mike Flynn or others could be charged with this incredibly obscure act from the, like 1801 or something, um, which criminalized, the name is actually escaping me now, but which criminalized essentially freelance diplomacy that on, on the part of U.S. officials that goes outside the you know the designated channel um so i mean that would that would cause a whole slew of additional problems i don't think he could do uh, i mean maybe there is some behind the scenes stuff he can do look look i mean i guess the ultimate point is i'm not really trying to argue at least for my own purposes that he's sincere on it i'm just saying that like if we examine the options that are on offer and he's the only person who's explicitly saying we have to transition to immediate negotiations, then whatever like the precise determination you can make about his sincerity, that that's all there is. Um, so, you know, okay. you have to kind of you work with what you have before you. I'd, I, I'd end with this. I actually entertain the idea that the Democrats or whoever you want to call the people bringing the indictment understand that the, the, the blowback risk is that they further his campaign, right? But they understand as well that if he got into power, as long as he spends the military money and he, does, and he, and he just follows the military expenditure tra trajectory of a hawk, that's the primary thing that they need. And on all of the other window dressing of whether he'll abandon the gender identity politics and all this other stuff is just literally political niff-naff and trivia because as long as he keeps spending the money and they can point him at an enemy that's all they give a shit about so yeah everything else yeah i mean what i would come back to just in terms of like what is makes the most practical sense to keep an eye on is not whatever trump says having some necessary relation to what he would actually do in office because we have no idea what the circumstances are going to be in January of 2025, right? But in the present, his stated policy positions, including and especially on Ukraine, but also Taiwan stuff and what have you, that has a direct, as direct as you can get of a connection to the faction of Republicans in the House who basically just take marching orders from Trump. Um, and so, like, a, so a Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor, there's not going to be any daylight between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump on Ukraine, right? So if what he says goes, and again, given the slim margin in the House, I think it's only like nine seats or something that McCarthy has uh, wiggle room on, that, that, that could be decisive easily. And so, you know, that, that has a 
very tangible, immediate impact in terms of what he decides to say in his public statement. So it's not just an aimless, meandering punditry, which he's going to do anyway, but in, at least in that respect, it actually could have a very acute policy ramification, which I, I'm going to at least be uh, monitoring. So Okay, appreciate it. Appreciate All it. right, thanks, Gator. Uh, hey, Phil, how's it going? Hello. Hey. How you doing? Uh, oh, okay. I want to follow up on that. Logan Act. Thank you for, for the guy who put that in the comments. Logan Act. Slip my mind. Yeah. Uh, I want to follow up with Richard on, uh, and it relates to some of the earlier conversation about casualties and stuff. And everything. But Richard, you did a post the other day that uh, uh, on the bombing, the uh, uh, little terrorist bombing or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> in uh, St. Petersburg, I guess it was. And uh, in the context of that, when you described it, your point, I think the point that you were making was that uh, the Ukrainians had a much more supportive populace than the Russians did. And that's why you could do these things there that you couldn't do in Ukraine or something like that. Richard, I, Richard seems to have uh, slipped out, but I can try to channel what he would say. <laughs> so, so Richard's argument was: I mean, I could probably, I, could, I probably can channel what that idiot said. He he, he said that because the, like the general fervor and unity in Ukraine toward the war effort is greater than the parallel in Russia, then there's like more standing on the part of. Ukraine's, you know, uh, military forces or security services to undertake like ambitious or risky um, actions, like for example, setting up this uh, cafe bombing to to blow up a uh, a so-called mill blogger um, who's popular on Telegram in Saint Petersburg. Uh, yeah, there's basically, and I think I found it now. I said while. Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians are united in their cause. Russia has simply lost the war for public opinion and needs to try to win through uh, brute force. Oh, I don't even know what uh, he's talking about. They're lost the, in terms of public opinion within Russia or yes, across yes. the world? No, and it, well, no, I think in, within Russia. And he'd be well, wrong, what is his uh, public uh, opinion Russia data for Russia? Russia. <laughs> I mean, I see uh, mixed, yeah. I see mixed um, findings from what the state of public opinion is in Russia, sometimes you'll hear that Putin has all-time highs in his approval, or at least had all-time high approval ratings at like some point within the points within the past year. And then other times you'll hear that maybe he's gone down a bit. I mean, but of course, it's really impossible to say with any certainty. I think there's only one that I know of Russian firm that is basically agreed to be reliable, and I haven't seen much data from them lately. So I don't know where he's getting that. Yeah, the last one that I saw had him up around seventy nine or something, something like that. Right. But even That's if we, high. even if even if you dismiss that, okay, uh, I mean, number one, what we all know is that any kind of terrorist act on home territory doesn't make people cynical about the war. It goes in the opposite. Well, yeah, it's going to it's going to inflame uh, sure. passions okay. in support of an uh, the the Russian war effort. Uh, you would think, and against Ukraine. Right. It's got a hard attitude. And, uh, 
Yeah, and that, now the the problem that we've do, got. With hey, Phil, do you know do you know what the high watermark of George W. Bush's approval rating was after nine eleven? I happen to know this off the top of my head. I'm curious if you could estimate it. Uh, I would say it was probably after the uh, after the speech in. Uh, no, uh, what what was his what, what was the highest approval rating numerically that he registered post nine eleven? Oh, oh, very good. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Probably maybe fifty five, sixty. Oh, 90. George 90. W. Bush in October of 2001 yeah, had a 90% approval rating. That's staggering. <laughs> and that's because, on a bigger scale, obviously, but a terrorist attack taking place in the United States caused exactly. everyone to express their eternal uh, gratitude and love for George W. Bush. Well, look, I'm an old SDSer. <laughs> and that thing had me going. You know, I thought, well, now. now now we've crossed a, a bridge too far. You know, even if you're sympathetic to uh, situations in the Middle East, you like the Palestinians, whatever, uh, you know, blowing up a couple of thousand people is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a little over the top. So, <laughs> I would uh, say so. And then knock on the buildings and everything. Yeah. But anyway, the point that I, I was going to make is, is this comment, you know, suggests the big problem that we have with this uh, intervention here uh, and that the uh, and what you were talking about earlier, which is the, uh, the you know, the, the casualty figures, the reality of what's going on on the ground. And we're just uh, the subject to all this uh, extraordinary propaganda. And, and this has gone on and on, this whole thing about, you know, they're not supporting them. Uh, uh, Russians are fighting it. They're they're deserting. They're complaining, you know, and all, all the normal stuff that, you, that you've been hearing all along which kind of distorts your view of this, you know. Uh, and it happened that I looked, and you can look this up, there is a great, I think it was a BBC or, uh, uh, you know, uh, The Economist or something like that, uh, one of the British publications. During uh, the call-up for the Iraq War, okay, and you had something like 10 to 15 percent of people that were in the reserve force disappearing and not showing up. Right. Okay. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, when, when, uh, when that happened, uh, a lot of the... Because uh, they were calling up National Guard. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and you were getting these reactions from National Guard people, you know, who it was obvious as they were speaking that they had signed up for the, for the benefits and the, the educational support. And suddenly realize, oh, you're going to war. Yeah. So, uh, well, just just a quick, quick point, quick point on that because there have been a lot of reports about you know desertions in the Russian military or how the mobilization that Putin launched in September was faltering, and uh, you know people were fleeing the country, which I'm sure did uh, has happened to some significant extent. Actually, my friend Chris Arnotti, who's a who's a journalist and writer, he was in Kazakhstan in. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan in uh, December or January, and uh, he met people who had he met like eth- you know Russians, ethnic ethnic Russians who had to whose only route out to ev- evade the draft was to Kyrgyzstan. Um, so I, well, it's a real it's, it's a real thing. But the, what I wanted to just mention quickly is that it's normal. It's normal. Well, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and here, but here's what I looked up, right? Because if you just buy into the standard folkloric understanding of World War II, you would think that there were no desertions, right? Everybody right. joined the service willingly and happily to serve their country. 
I, the, one of the, the estimates that I found that's credible, oddly, it's hard to find the data. I, I eventually dug it out. There are at least there are over 500,000 desertions for the draft yeah. in World War II. And, they, and there, I even was going back into old New York Times from like 41, 2, 3, where they would periodically do these mass raids in New York City, rounding up like 100, 200 draft daughters at a time who weren't you know, fulfilling their legal obligation to join, to fight in World War II. So this idea that there was like this uh, total societal consensus about how great it would be to go and, uh, you know, fight in the death killing fields of uh, Europe, uh, it's just not the case. That's just a retroactive sort of ascription of this sort of uh, glory to, to a war that had all the same sort of messiness and nuances and, uh, you know, uh, debates and anger and alienation and everything that, you'd expect, but it you know, has this gloss now of like this mythological event, which is right. just not accurate. And, and, and if you look around, you know, there, there's something like a million, I, I'm not sure what the number is, but it's a phenomenal number of young Ukrainian men, as well as women, that are all over Europe, Britain, Canada, and a variety of other places, you know, that are not jumping on planes rushing uh, to go back. Uh, yeah. Right. So anyway, but it is, you know, it, it's kind of normalcy. But, but when you get it in this propaganda form, it, you know, it again distorts the picture. I mean, talking about the casualties, I don't know what the hell the New York Times is talking about. I mean, <laughs> the BBC has worked out some numbers that are way higher than that. And they're doing uh, they had a group that was doing it based on uh, uh, burials and uh, and ceremonies, you know, in, in just regular towns across uh, uh, the eastern part of, uh, uh, of, of Russia. And, you know, so they were coming up with some figures that were certainly higher. Uh, Vander, whatever her name is, that dystopian leader of the uh, EU. Uh, yeah, Van, uh, yeah, Vanderlyn. I, 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 always, I always think that she's Cruella DeVille from 101 Dumb. She, she does give off this incredible dystopian vibe that makes me think of weird pictures where you have this I don't know, whatever. <laughs> She's a little strange. But uh, but she slipped up, it was about two, three weeks ago, where she let the cat out of the bag and said that the uh, Ukrainians had casualties over 100,000. Uh, and then they, the EU then ended up retracting it and saying, right. well, she had misspoken. You know, you know I think... Uh, I, I don't think I, she I, misspoke. Uh, you know, it's plausible <laughs> to me that she did misspeak. Why would she get this privileged access to Ukraine casualty figures? She doesn't, she's not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. I actually well, talk, no, I no, talked to her briefly not. at the Munich conference. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's no reason to think that she somehow is, is being fed the accurate casualty data. Well, I, I do think that they have access to uh, the various national military analysts and the EU military analysts. Yeah. They, and I think they know more about the situation. You know, it's like talking to them about who blew up the pipeline. Well, you got all these geniuses there and they don't know. You're kidding me. You know, it's it's silly. Right. So they've got casualty estimates. Uh, uh, military people know what happens. They, they know how many people are available for training in Britain and everything. And they know when you're running out uh, of folks. And everything. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's oh, on, on that thinking. on that point, quickly, on in March 16th, the Politi Politico had a story that came out. It was sort of odd because here's the quote from the Politico report. This was one of, you know, th that week of March, there was like, uh, an unusual thing that happened where you had a spate of stories. There was one in the Washington Post, one in Politico, maybe one other, where they had these uh, bearish 
casualty figures of Ukraine that were being reported in like a mainstream venue really for the first time. In the Politico report, it says upwards of 100,000 Ukrainian forces had died in the year-long war, U.S. officials estimate, including the most experienced soldiers, which is pretty yeah. dire, right? But then a guy who was tweeting at me was claimed that that was a faulty figure because it was based on a certain estimate. It was mischaracterized. And he actually got uh, – an anonymous tr Twitter guy got Politico to correct, to, to correct the report and, say, and said that it wasn't um, – it was 100,000 casualties overall, not deaths. So I don't know what's... And it's weird because it seemed like they, they, this was sourced to a particular U.S. official that this reporter had access to, and yet then they changed it all around. I don't know what the story is exactly, but... Um, well, it's very hard for people that are getting probably relatively uh, reasonable qualitative information, at least good estimates. I'm assuming that they, they've got good people there. They're watching. They've got satellite imagery. I mean, they can, they can see what's going on. They can count. They have people on the ground there that are doing intelligence. Uh, you know, so they're going to have pretty good estimates. The problem the is German, the, the, the German the, the, intelligence the, services in January, it was leaked to Der Spiegel. I think I've repeated this before in the call -in, but at least as of January, like during one of the peaks of the Bakhmut fighting, they were claiming that there were uh, 200 dead would be a typical day for Ukraine yes. in Bakhmut. Right. Well, well, Zelensky himself, at the point of uh, when there was the so-called so uh, back and forth offensive, uh, you know, earlier in the year, I guess that was in the middle of the summer, he said that they were losing about 200 a day, you know, at that point. So, you know, it, it starts to get silly after a while, because if you, if you just add all that up, it's, it's a lot higher than what the, they're claiming. But it, it, the difficulty that they have is the longer this goes, this is the first uh, uh, encounter like this where you basically have no real reportage from the reality on the ground. Yeah, and you, the, and you the, still have and you still have this pretense on the part of the U.S. "quote unquote" intelligence community, namely through Avril Haines, who's the director of national intelligence, that they, they they're still insisting that they have significantly greater insights on Russian military operations and Russian casualties and Russian like behind the scenes maneuverings and they do Ukraine. I don't know if I believe that, but that's at least the line they're going with. Um, and they, they still, that's still the appearance that they're keeping up partially because it's, you know, it's just a, another fa uh, front in the information war. I mean, it's very simple. It's not hard to figure out why they would be concealing the casualty figures. Right. So I don't know. Sure. At, at a certain, at a certain point, I question the utility and like, Speculating too much on that, I mean, it, it is what it is. I, I, I more want to see, for example, what the precise nature is of the operational coordination that the U.S. is undertaking with respect to this allegedly well, forthcoming counteroffensive. What it does is it minimizes the uh, the disaster that's <laughs> that's going on there, and which would lead people to say, oh, "Wait a minute, that's." That's not gonna. That's not gonna work. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you're gonna. Yeah, you know, and so it distorts figures because if you look at any news, you know, I don't care what it is. It's Fox. I mean, CNN is probably better on this thing now than uh, than any other station. Uh, occasionally, they, uh, they they have a reality check, but uh, people you know, don't. Un watching, people have no awareness that in World War II. Sorry to be one of these like World War II guys who's like existence is or is uh, organized around world war ii i hope that's not me exactly but you wouldn't believe the extent to which 
information control was, you know, uh, clenched with like a vice grip to prevent stuff exactly like casualty figures from being reported. They would fabricate, you know, the U.S., the, you know, the generals who were you know, liaison, uh, liaising with the media, they would just make stuff up uh, in terms of casualty figures. The, the true um, casualties of the, uh, of the strategic bombing in Germany, for instance, didn't come out until years later. And, and if the enormity of the death toll there had been reported contemporaneously, maybe there would have been enough of a revulsion that there could have said, oh, look, maybe we don't actually have to go for a total war and that we have to extirpate both the Japanese and the German state uh, completely if it means like wiping out enormous numbers of civilians through aerial bombardment. Maybe there's like a different way to bring about a resolution to this war that's already been going on for four years. But they, you know, they suppress the information. Sure, and that was the kicker. Uh, that, that's what killed them in in Vietnam. Is you know, you sit around every night and uh, wa- watching numbers. You know? uh, yeah, not, and then the, the, and, the and it's, it's, it's sort of flipped with Iraq because, like, even like starting with the Gulf War, the U.S. was boastful of the low. Uh, well, they controlled it, but they were all, but they were also more willing to release the casualty figures because they were relatively low. And they were boastful of how low they were keeping the casualty figures because that would be then tailored toward maintaining popular support. Sure. So there was strategic exactly. transparency. Well, they had learned from the previous engagements for sure. Uh, anyway, again, it, it distorts the overall picture. When you listen to people talking about this, uh, you know, I'm just talking to average people and they're going, oh, well, the Ukrainians are just doing so great. You know, we got to give them more. And uh, it, it doesn't represent uh, what I what I think is the reality. I mean, after all, you know, just because they think the Russians ran out of missiles last year. Yeah, and 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 and, and I mean, think, think about it. Let's like, let's say you're in, you're a Ukrainian. Right? Let's say you know, you're broadly supportive of the war effort. You're just an average Ukrainian citizen, right? But maybe you do have an inclination that it would be in the public interest to actually have the accurate casualty figures publicize for whatever exact reason, but that's your, your belief. Think of what risk you're running if you try to sort of facilitate the promulgation of that information. They could, you could be shot dead on the spot, potentially. I, mean, I don't know what the state of the martial law protocol is there, but it doesn't seem like that they would look kindly on that. Well, I hear they're working on priests now, so <laughs> because, yeah. you know, they're spies and information channels to the Russians. Uh, yeah, Again, that's why I reacted to Richard's thing and everything, because I, you know, I, I, I was around in those days and everything. And I guess Richard was not familiar with the uh, weathermen or the Symbionese Liberation Army or blowing up uh, uh, labs in Madison, Wisconsin. I, you know, so the, you know, uh, uh, a violent resistance is not necessarily an indication. Uh, uh, you know, that was going on while there was still majority support for the war effort you know so it's it's complicated at that point yep uh anyway uh, all right thanks phil i'll leave it at that thank you uh kevin are you there Hi, i'm here you hear me hey hey yep how's it going sorry i'm doing good i hope you're doing good tonight so um i'm an old-time democrat the first president i ever voted for was mcgovern and that's the kind of Democrat I was. Really? I can't so how stand old were you in 72? 18? Um, had to be 21. Okay. To vote then. I, I, uh, I have a soft spot for George, George McGovern, even though I was not obviously a lot to vote for. But he has a, had an interesting life. But anyway, go ahead. 
But the Democratic Party was a lot different then than it is now, obviously. Well, McGovern is was a species of Democrat that's been almost completely wiped out. He was from South Dakota, exactly. right? Exactly. It was like a, there's, right. there was like this agrarian Democrat tradition that actually, you know, was more in the populist, if you want to put it that way, wing of the party, and also had the most robust uh, constituency of, of anti-interventionism. The 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 uh, like the, the plain states and the uh, sort of Mountain West and you know the Dakotas, Montana, et cetera. Th- those were where you had an outsized proportion of anti-war sentiment for for, for both parties, really. But um, th- that that explains in large part why George McGovern emerged from that particular political context in, in South Dakota. Now a Democrat couldn't get elected in South Dakota for anything if his life depended on it. It's like not even possible anymore. Exactly. So, uh, but now we have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. coming forth with his Kennedy magic. Yeah. And I'm a little... He's kind of a throwback. A little, he seems like kind of a throwback maybe to some of these ideas. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little wary. Maybe it's just like knee-jerk uh, knee skepticism or cynicism, but, uh, you know... It's, he's going to sell a lot more books. I mean, I'm not saying that he necessarily has a corrupt motive in totality, right? But when you have like a slightly more novelty type candidate who is all of a sudden running for president, you know, they could have a generally principled motivation for wanting to do this. But you also have to bear in mind that there's lots of just self-interested reasons why they could benefit from the notoriety that is inherent to running for president. You do right. sell a lot of books. You do generate a huge email list. You do just raise your public stature overall, which can then translate into various other opportunities. Now, Robert Kennedy Jr. obviously is slightly different than your average sort of novelty candidate in that it's a household name. People know that his, who his father and his uncle was, et cetera. Right. Um, and you know, if he's challenging the Democratic incumbent as a Kennedy, even if he's a bit of a uh, anomalous Kennedy, then that's going to generate attention. I don't know. Um, it could be interesting, I guess, uh, but I, I, I need to see more uh, thorough explication of his views on things. I, don't, I did a little bit of a searching around for his position on Ukraine, for instance. Didn't find much. He did an interview with Megyn Kelly last October, I think, about his son who joined the Ukraine military as like a mercenary. I don't know how much, if at all, that reflects on Robert F. Kennedy Jr., but you know that's what he chose to emphasize. So I don't know. I'm just going to reserve. Yeah, he he doesn't seem to be going that direction towards being a pro-Ukraine person, but I'm not really sure about that. But uh, he does have a deep hatred of the deep state. He accuses them of murdering his uncle and uh, father. So he, if he got elected, yeah. he might clean out the yeah. deep state. And that would be good, wouldn't it? What What is his actual – I mean, if you asked him today – to just summarize his view on the assassination of John F. Kennedy in like a couple of sentences. Do you know what he would say? I know he, I, I've seen what he said, he said recently about his father and, and denying that Sirhan Sirhan was the assassination and being uh, advocating for the parole of Sirhan Sirhan. I don't know off the top of my head how he would describe his view on the JFK assassination. I believe you know? that he tweeted that he thought that the deep state murdered is his uncle. I mean, you got to be a little bit more precise than that, though, don't you? <laughs> well, 
I mean, there has been, there was CIA yeah. stuff that came out yeah. a couple months ago. He might be referencing that, uh, where, you know, for the first time, there was at right. least some documentation showing that a sort of uh, group within the CIA of like this like fake Cuban exile group mm-hmm. had interfaced with Lee Harvey Oswald, I think in August, and then of course the assassinations in November. Um, so that might be what he's referring to. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm I'm as much of a JFK assassination buff as anybody, so I'd like more info on that. So yeah, but, yeah, man, it, it, all this Trump talk. I'm sick of Trump. <laughs> too bad. So I've been sick of Trump too, but <laughs> there's nothing we can do about it. We're stuck in a Trump time loop, <laughs> and he's such a lamo. <laughs> he is, but he also you have to admit at times can be quite funny. I get yeah. his like email uh, press updates mm-hmm. and um, he sent out like a little, uh, it was a, a couple lines of a press release type thing after the indictment. He was just like, <laughs> like I don't, I, here, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up. Cause just, it, it, it is funny. Um, you almost have to, it's almost, it's almost funnier to read because he's like, he said, thank you. Uh, thanks everyone so much. And he like spelled so s o o o o as to just you know <laughs> uh, like the uh, okay here got it the great patriots inside and outside the courthouse on Tuesday were unbelievably nice in fact they couldn't have been nicer court attendants police officers and others were all very professional and represented New York City so well <laughs> just some random <laughs> thank you thank you to all so he's on the day of his indictment he's putting out a message saying thank you to all. Yeah, it could be a hoot. You got to appreciate that yeah. in a morbid, uh, comedic sense, if nothing else. I, I hope Robert F. Kennedy has some sense of humor. You know, maybe this is a superficial thing, but I can barely understand what he's saying half the time because he has like yeah. his like vocal cords seem like they're fried, don't they? Yeah, he he has a he has a problem. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a serious problem, and you have to be able to hear yeah. what a, a presidential candidate is saying. That's and his true. voice is like almost unlistenable, right? I, mean, I, I I I sympathize, but like, you know, that's kind of a tool you need to communicate with the public. <laughs> that, that's true. That could be a problem for him. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for discussing him. Anyway, I appreciate yeah. it. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, John. John from New Jersey. Can you hear me? My fellow, my my fellow New Jerseyan. So, um, all right. So. Obviously, I don't believe that anybody's above the law, but like, just that's really a whole, that, that's a canard. I mean, they were chanting that at the arraignment I was at uh, outside the courthouse. Nobody's above the law. That's not the point. I, but I, I, anyway, make your point because I feel like yeah. I know what you're But, but, uh, but like, what I do believe is that like everybody, like, and especially the little, little guy needs to have faith in the justice system and that like they're not going to screw around. So with the Trump indictment, my problem with it is the conundrum that it puts on a candidate. So like, like it or not, hush money paying it isn't illegal. And now we're faced with a situation where a candidate is potentially doing something illegal and can have it weaponized against him or her um, just because of the fact of like technicalities of reporting. So what I mean by that is if Trump was to say that this was because of his marriage and he paid it personally, a DA could say that it was for campaign purposes and indict him. 
if Trump was to pay, say it was for election things and pay for, through, for it through his campaign, the same DA could say, well, no, 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 it was because of your marriage, clearly, and indict him. Right. So he could say he so, falsified the business record either way, theoretically. Right. Exactly. So right now, so no matter what you do, a normal act that's legal by in, in society is now, no matter which well, hold way on a second, you look John. at it. Hold on a second, John, because I don't know if you read the, actually read the indictment. This was one of the most shocking parts of it to me. Bragg, and I, I tweeted an excerpt of this when, on, on uh, Wednesday, Bragg actually asserts that the payment to Stormy Daniels was illegal. So, of course, hush money unto itself is not illegal. Hush money is like a crass way of describing a non-disclosure settlement, right, That's financial, with financial remuneration. But Bragg, amazingly, just states in the, in the uh, statement of uh, fact that the payment itself was illegal, but the trick is Bragg, of course, does not bring a charge by which he would have to meet the burden of establishing that the payment was, in fact, illegal. So he just asserts it. All 34 charges are just replications of the same falsification of uh, records charge, right? He's not charging Trump with having been party to the transmission of an illegal $130,000 payment, right? But he then circumvents the burden of proof and then just states that's illegal and thereby gives Trump no due process ability to contest that the payment was in fact illegal because it's not charged officially <laughs> against Trump. I mean, it's, it, it actually is an incredible, incredibly um, portentous civil liberties issue Forget Trump. This 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 is something that could be cited as precedent to degrade the def, uh, ability of defendants to uh, challenge allegations of their complicity and illegality. But so here's the thing, though, right? So and for um, any listeners out there, they should know, like in New York state, it's different than everywhere else. There's the indictment, which in every other state tells the whole story. And then there's a statement of fact in New York, which tells kind of like this actual story. And in the statement of fact, in paragraph two at the bottom, it says literally in a little line that there were tax implications involved. All right. And that's where they're going to go with this. What they're going to say when all is said and done is that he, where it was a campaign thing, it was a personal thing. It doesn't really matter. He paid for it with his business in a scheme to defraud the state of tax dollars. All right. And that's how they're going to try to get it. Which again then has another moral, another legal conundrum, which is if he has morality clauses, like let's say with his TV shows and stuff, or he doesn't want to sully his brand, which is Trump, he has every right to pay for it with his business money. Okay. But yet if he pays with it with his business money, then they can say, well, it was really for personal or for campaign and you now screwed us out of taxes. So it's, it's, it's a head we win, tails you lose. Hold scenario. on though, John, question for you because. I'm sort of confused by that little line about the uh, about. Here, I'll read it. The partas the participants also took steps that mischaracterized for tax purposes the true nature of the payments made in furtherance of the scheme. So that's very vague. Could yeah, that just a, could that just be a reference to Cohen? No, that's that's the, not, that's that's not, the most that's, important. That's line. not obviously an allegation that Trump Trump's taxes were falsified or there was some fraud committed on Trump's part. 
They're talking about the scheme. Plead. Cohen's one of the parties to the scheme. We already know that Cohen pleaded guilty that, to that whole array of tax charges. So that could just be an allusion to Cohen, couldn't it? If, if you get a chance, and anyway, you should read uh, or watch Judge Napolitano's Judging Freedom second episode on the Trump charges where he goes into it, like from the judge perspective. And he's just like, yeah, they're going after him because of taxes. Yeah, I don't like know. 100%. I've, uh, I've, I've listened to uh, interviews from the, uh, Trump's uh, defense attorney for this case, uh, Takapina. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he said repeatedly that there was no tax implication to any of this in that the business records that were allegedly falsified solely and exclusively were contained within Trump organization ledgers. It, there was no filing to the IRS. There's no filing to the federal Right, but it's all pre-tax dollars. So if you had to pay a campaign donation, like if he made a donation personally to his campaign, that would be after you paid taxes. If you did it with personal money, it's after you paid taxes. He's saying he... he tr- John, you just dropped out. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're back. I'm sorry. So if you make a donation, let's say, to your campaign to pay for it, that's with post-tax, that's with your personal thing. You've already paid taxes. And if you make a donation, if you do it with personal money, you've already paid taxes. What they're going to say is that since it was through the business, he did it through the business to avoid taxes. So this ancillary crime which wasn't specified by bragg but is a prerequisite for enhancing the misdemeanors into a felony that that enhancement could stem from the tax charges associated with the trump organization prosecution that had uh weiselberg pleading for uh that had the plea agreement with weiselberg is that right right and that's where they and that's you know they throw a lot of shit in that uh statement of fact and they don't really tell you where they're going to go but they, they don't say things for no reason they won't bring up taxes if there's not an impl- like there's no reason you know to like that may, it makes sense you know where they would go with it but again it's well, wrong if, if, that, if that if 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 you're right about that if that's the theory that's going to be employed as to how to enhance those misdemeanor charges into a felony it's through some tax uh, allegation of a tax law violation then that actually flies in the face of what Takapina has been saying. Now, I don't know that he's has the full metaphysical truth on his side. He was saying that he, he, well, he was saying that they're almost certain that the ancillary illegality would be the federal campaign finance. Violation. Yeah, but the, but the thing is, is that again, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which way you go with it. The tax thing, it's like, how did they get um, Al Capone taxes? Like, it's the I'm easy tired of way the Al for uh, cliche. I mean, I actually read, I actually I, I read get, a whole it, but, uh, journal article on Al Capone, but, how he was prosecuted. It's not what people think it is, but anyway, go ahead. But, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, for like, you know, just like rhetorical purposes, like, like it's a very easy way for Alvin Bragg and them to fake out one way when they're going to go another. But, you know, some of those same due process uh, issues might still hold because if you're just going to vaguely reference the existence of a tax crime and then that's the basis for your enhancement of the misdemeanor, then and you and you don't bring a charge that specifically relates to the tax violation, like there's no citation of a like none, in none of the counts cite New York tax law and allege Trump for violating it, right? 
So there's still the due process impediment whereby Trump cannot actually contest his culpability for that allegedly illegal act, illegal act vis-a-vis the tax law because he's no. not being charged with anything. Right, and, and I agree, and like that's why this whole thing is so murky and untested and all that. Now, getting to another thing, I think that this is just that I think that they needed somebody to rip off the Band-Aid of prosecuting or indicting a president. And they just, you know, they don't like Alvin Bragg. All right. And they just let him be the fall guy. Whether this works or not is really irrelevant. The Uniper you were saying before, like, why is like Bolton or all these people taking Trump's side? They're not taking Trump's side. They're all giving themselves cover for the other times they charge him in the future, like whether it be in Georgia or whatever. Yeah. So they can say, no, 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 we don't hate Trump. We agreed with him in, in New York. So it's yeah, but it's, get, it's getting to be too much at this point, given what, you know, Fulton County or whatever. Well, uh, Asa Hutchinson, who, you know, the governor, former governor of Arkansas, he actually went as far as to de- demand that Trump drop out of the race because whatever the strength or lack thereof of the indictment, he was saying that just the very uh, fact that Trump would be embroiled in a criminal proceeding means that he needs to, you know, uh, attention would be diverted from the campaign and he ought to drop out. I don't know. I, I haven't seen anybody else uh, repeating that, but, you know, at least one Republican declared candidate yeah. said that. He's an asshole. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't like Asa Hutchinson? No. I mean, and it's not that. It's just like, you know, I think that, like, I don't like people that take, like, positions that are clearly self-serving. You know what I mean? Like, okay, like, if you weren't running for president, like, yeah, just drop out because of this. You know, it's like, totally, yeah, obviously. You know, like, you want to be president. Oh, I mean, Asa Hutchinson, he's just a Bush, uh, warmed over Bush guy. I mean, he served in the George Bush administration. I forget what position he had now, but like, he's like, and that's, that's his, the Bush Republican Party is like very squarely his Republican Party. So, yeah. So anyway, I, I just wanted to, to like, you know, for your listeners and for like, I think this is going to go the tax way. Um, I think that, I oh, think that Trump. Oh, Asa, Asa, Hutchinson was, Asa Hutchinson was the administrator of the DEA <laughs> under Bush. Anyway, go ahead. Right. So like, you know, I just think that like, this is not how you do things because, you know, uh, not to like, you know, get into those sayings, like, you know, in those cl- cliches, but like, you know, Listen, every time I hear of some person that was exonerated by DNA that was on death row or this, it makes my blood boil because somebody like literally's life was ruined and they went to jail and all this shit. And, you know, look what they're doing right now. Like you, you're in an unwinnable situation if you're Trump, you know, because no matter what you say, you go the other way. And it has nothing to do with Trump. You know what I mean? I'd say the same thing. It was Hillary. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. something that occurred to me when you first started speaking and actually also goes back to something that Richard said, Richard said that one of the the reasons why he was so mistaken in his uh, predictions as to what the severity of the charges would be, he thought there would be some grand, you know, conspiracy uh, charges brought with like all kinds of explosive evidence was because he still thinks that he has um, excessive faith in the legitimacy of the justice system. And I think you said a version of that or in that, like one of the, um, downfalls of this prosecution is going to be that it's erosion of people's just general uh, faith in in the you know judicial system or whatnot, or, right? Or, or, and, but or, here, here's, the thought, here's the thought I had. I mean, okay, and you know, this is going to sound maybe to some who aren't open minded as like a social justice type point, but like assemble a, a focus group of of fifty black people 
and asked them if they had a pre-existing faith in the criminal justice system. And there wouldn't have been any, like, there, you wouldn't have to prove to them or it, it wouldn't come as a surprise to them that maybe the faith that's put into the virtuous operations of, you know, the a prosecutor's office ought not to be, like, credul- credulously um, uh, affirmed, Right. And, you know, of course, it's not all blacks, but like if you actually have if you actually are in a socioeconomic position where you and lots of people in your social circle have had to interface with the criminal justice system. Like when I was 16, I got busted for marijuana. Right. Where when they were like hunting high schoolers down and, you know, locking them up for literally smoking a, a joint. I mean, not I'm not exaggerating. I'm not uh, exaggerating the triviality of it. That's what it was. And, you know. When you have a formative experience like that, just based on personal, you know, uh, you know, lived experience, you just instinctively are not going to assign credulity to the virtuous workings of the criminal justice system because you know how, you know, uh, punitively and even almost at times sadistically, it just embroils people. Just as a matter of course, whether or not you convicted, whether the whatever the ultimate sort of resolution to your case is, like obviously I, would, I didn't go to jail or anything. I just you know had to, but I had to an absurdly protracted kind of court process that I had to succumb to, and it's you know it's it really like if you if you if you're fortunate enough that you never have to experience that yourself, um, good for you. But it also sort of uh, closes you off from a more visceral understanding of why it is that lots of people in society feel justified in being actively antagonistic toward the justice system such that they would never presume to afford it any kind of credibility in the first place. I I 100% agree. I think that, um, I think that anyone who honestly thinks that the justice system is just by and large is fooling themselves. We can see it in so many examples over so much time in so many different places in so many different ways that it's not just coincidence. There is, there is a problem and I don't know what the answer is to it, but you can't expect fair trials in certain places. You can't expect fair charges in certain places the, the power that is given to the prosecution is tremendous compared to what a defense person has yeah. to work with. And the reality is, is that we live in a society that would rather it would rather wrongly jail 100 people um, to get the one bad guy when we should not jail 100 bad guys to save the one innocent person from going to jail. Like when you have a situation, like jail is taking away somebody's freedom. It's the worst thing, like intellectually and like what a a government should do. It's the most consequential act that the state can take. It's a deprivation of liberty. Right. Exactly. So there is. Remember, remember, remember when Mike Flynn got basically entrapped because he naively thought, Oh yeah, I'll just cooperate with these nice FBI guys who just want to have a quick chat with me. What's the big deal? We're all on the same side, right? Turns out that they were concocting this, you know, ridiculous uh, scheme to basically uh, uh, trick him into admitting some sort of far-flung criminal uh, admission. But one of the lessons from that, 
I, I thought was at least a certain segment of society that might not have otherwise been exposed to it, meaning like, I don't know, let's, again, sorry to make an identity reference, but like, you know, white Republican men who like think that the police and the FBI and everybody are on their side. So why wouldn't you cooperate that with them? You're not going to decline to speak to the police. You're, you know, all on the same team. Well, maybe not. Maybe actually you should be familiarize yourself with civil liberties and the ways in which the prosecutorial arm of the state can be um, wielded against you under certain circumstances. And yeah, it is the case that once you develop that sort of baseline critical detachment from the system, you're much more in league with like, you know, what blacks Americans have almost universally under had their understanding be, you know, for ages, which I, I think there's some upside to that because it gives people a more realistic understanding of how the system operates. It shows that people in society who might have thought that they were like in the good graces of these sort of this machinery also can have it come down on them. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing, like, you know, I'm not against like I'm not against the justice system. I love it and I want it to work. But I get very offended as an American and as somebody who believes in it. When the, the when the prosecutor the prosecutor side of things, which has everything in their favor legitimately, then abuse the power. Like it's to me so ridiculous that you either accept a plea deal or you get the full charges. Like that's outrageous. Like it shouldn't be like, oh yeah, you just go to jail for nine months, or if you fight us, you go to jail for ten years. Like to me, that's a blatant abuse. Yeah, I mean, even in, I don't know if have you ever tried to um, contest. A traffic ticket. I have taken traffic tickets to trial because, <laughs> I mean, that's your constitutional right, even in traffic court. Not necessarily because I uh, was going to be hobbled by being found guilty of a uh, motor vehicle violation, but because I wanted to, like, test it out and see if it's even possible to do what in theory should be available to any citizen, which is, you know, make a persuasive case in a court of law that you are not actually guilty of the crime that the state is alleging you're guilty of. There's just the, the, when I've done this, they don't even try to hide it. And again, this is trivial. It's traffic law. It's not that big of a deal, but it is still sort of illuminating in that the, the cop, the prosecutor and the judge, especially in these podunk municipal courts where everybody knows each other anyway, they don't even try to hide their just, blatant collusion with one another like they're working as a single unit to get you to just give up and admit that you committed the infraction and pay the fine right they're not they have no interest whatsoever in exercising any kind of impartial conduct of the proceedings such that you can actually make a fair defense right and you know okay it doesn't for most people it doesn't really matter because it's just you know a 200 hundred dollar fine whatever but if you just extrapolate that out through all the different levels of the system, you you see why it is that the decks are just so sort of inherently stacked in a way that gives just the this again, a visceral impression to lots of people that it's not and inherently it's just not a fair or equitable system. Right. And so, like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I was never into like I'm a Republican. I cringed when they were screaming, lock her up, lock her up. Not because of like not because of like, you know, if I thought she was guilty or innocent or anything like that, but because of like the um, the jubilee and like the like the camaraderie around you. Right. And like, you know who like, first stoked not... that chant? Do you remember? 
Bush? No, it was uh, it was Rudy at the Republican convention in 2016 in, in uh, Cleveland. He he was the one who like first ginned up that chant. Oh no, I was talking more just about like it's kind of like the same thing. Like you know when it, like I cringe when the Bush said like you're either with oh, us yeah, or yeah, you're yeah. against us. No, I meant I, I meant like you the first what? time that like there was actually a concerted lock her up chant. It was at the convention in 2016, and Rudy Giuliani was egging it on. Right, and and you know, and you know something that he should know better because like look what happened with Bernie Carrick, how it came around to bite him. You know right. what I mean? And he eventually got it. And the point is, is that I don't have a problem if bad people go to jail. I think that, like, it is. But, like, the point is, like, how many good people are going to jail because everybody just has faith in a system that isn't really doing its job? And nobody should agree, think that it's doing its job because none of these politicians and none of these people are doing their jobs. Like, I mean, they drop the ball constantly everywhere. Like, in every way, shape, or form, there's errors. And, like, you know, it's just this one actually fucks people, like, mentally, uh, financially, like, emotionally for life. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I've I, never I, personally known anyone who ended up interfacing with the criminal justice system for whatever uh, violation that was being alleged to them, mostly drug stuff, even for people who, like, were not, like, hardcore dealers or anything, people who would just get, you know, hunted down by especially these suburban cops in New Jersey because they have like a million different departments and they have to fill their time with nonsense. Um, I've never known anyone who's interfaced with the criminal justice system who you could make a reasoned argument actually deserved the punishment. It's just that they get embroiled in something through this overbearing punitive apparatus of, of the state. So, like, maybe if I had more exposure to people who, like, actually did something that was genuinely wrong and then got a proportionate punishment and it actually improved, you know, societal cohesion, then, okay, then I'm willing to entertain that. But I've never seen that. I don't know of it really happening. And it almost seems like it's just fundamentally not really a a practical outcome that you could realistically expect. All right. And and I don't let you go, but like, you know, I want to leave it on. So like now you have, you're going to have all these local prosecutors or state or county prosecutors that are going to see what like Alvin Bragg is doing. And this goes for both parties on both sides. And they're going to now get all hyped up to do the same shit, you know, make cases where they don't really need to basically lose prosecutorial discretion. Do you You think, do you you think there are, I mean, I've seen some Republicans saying, oh, if Republicans had any balls, you know, the district attorney of uh, Dallas County or of, uh, you know, uh, in Tampa somewhere or, you know, some Republican area, they they'll they would come up with a case where they can charge. I hate that. I yeah. hate that. It's disgusting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Listen, if there is a real case with real evidence and real way, then you do it quietly the right way what you don't do is just throw this ballpark thing you know well this now every red state should be trying to prosecute this one that one and that that's not american that's just getting us that's it's retribution taking it yeah and it's taking a system that was perverted against you and now perverting it back because you don't want to fix the problem but I they did that. open the floodgates for it right i mean because there had been a norm prior to this yeah, not nor, norms aren't necessarily inherently good, but there had been a norm against this that it wouldn't have been the purview of a local prosecutor to bring a charge against a former president, even if in theory you could come up with something that they were guilty of. Like, you know, anybody's I mean, if a prosecutor targeted me or you, they could probably find some misdemeanor somewhere that we could be theoretically charged with. But they don't do it out of discretion. The, the discretionary the discretionary obligation of the D.A. here was totally breached. 
And so once that floodgate is opened, I mean, you can't control what some local DA is going to do in Louisiana. There, a lot of these are elected autonomous offices. Yeah, and what did Garia, the head of Stalin secret police, say? You show me the man, I'll show you the crime. Right. You know, like straight up, like it doesn't matter who you are, though. You can find something. Exactly. I mean, look at how absurdly uh, uh, lengthy the criminal code is. I mean, federal, state, local. I mean, and it really is true that even if you're not a trained lawyer, if you spent like an afternoon in a law library and you like you don't like somebody at work or at school, you could find some statute that you could, you know, fashion probably a re- uh, reasonably uh, persuasive case that they're um, they're. they're that confers legal uh, criminal liability on them. That's that's why this prosecutory discretion is so vital, and that's why the manner in which a prosecutor chooses to allocate their finite resources that they have at their disposal is also a hugely significant thing. I mean, Bragg apparently thought that it was in the best interest of the residents of New York County, Manhattan, to spend years and however many million dollars making sure that Trump really has to pay for the Stormy Daniels thing. Well, that bear, that bears directly on his judgment as a public official with, who's endowed with a, a, the public trust. And I think, you know, there's very ample grounds to question the prudential wisdom of that determination. I, I agree. And with that, um, I'll let you go. And, um, you know, great stuff as always. And um, all right. Thanks, John. Night. All right. Uh, Will. Uh Thanks for sticking around. Fine, I have like headphones in, and that and that sometimes messes with my phone's microphone. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. All right, that's great. Um, I was wondering because earlier you and Richard were talking about um, uh, Trump on China, and how you were very very surprised that Biden had escalated with China. Well, I wasn't surprised about like that. I wasn't surprised about that. I was just you know stating. Oh. Uh, but, um, I would have guessed that probably. Was, was yeah. It was like Mearsheimer, I think. Mears- Mearsheimer was a bit, yeah, that's right. Mearsheimer was, I don't even know if he was, maybe I should maybe I mischaracterized it. Mearsheimer, I don't think was surprised either. He just sort of noted it. But anyway, the point uh, stands. I mean, yeah, go where you were. Yeah, because um, you see, with well, with Trump, right, he, he um, and he has always ran on like um, uh, kind of an, I wouldn't say anti-war, but he's like, let's get us out of these foreign policy fuck-ups sort of thing. And he did this in 2016. He said, you know, Assad, Gaddafi, they're not great, but we, we need to get out of these places. We need to stop doing this. And he did that, I believe. Well, um, arguably. He, he's always said that, um, and, um, you know, and he was the first to bomb the um, SAA. Um, Obama did not do that. He, you mentioned he armed Ukraine. And so when, when you say, and like a lot of people are going to say, um, you know, oh, okay, he can stop World War Three, and there's no reason to believe, like, uh, like I, I, you might believe that, but like, um, I, I think he, um, like, would escalate the war on China, and, um, you know, and yeah, he very well may. But I mean, but but yeah. but as it stands now, it's jo- it's been Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. J- Joe Biden is the one who, on four separate occasions, has he, declared he the one China policy. Well. Effectively, yes. I mean, not formally. It's like a de jure but, thing. But, well, I mean, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, a... but Biden did. Biden declared on four separate occasions in public, including at a press conference in Japan, standing next to the Japanese prime minister, that the U.S. will initiate a war against China over in the event of some incursion into Taiwan. Trump never went that far. And, and that scared me, that policy, actually, because I'm an Australian 
male. And in Australia, um, the United States has been pushing. There's actually been a, they've actually have a program, the, the US Embassy uh, in Canberra, they have a program to ensure that, um, to like get youth support for um, uh, like the US, because uh, they say, uh, you know, uh, we're not getting enough support among the youth. And I would just. What, what, what do you mean, get youth support? What uh, describe the uh, program a little well, more? Like, That's um, interesting. Is um, uh, it was it was in Pearls and Irritations, um, which is like a blog ran by the former um, CEO of Qantas. I need to find. How do you, how do you I, spell I that? It, like vaguely this. Who is it? Huh? Who, who is it? Pilsner? Pilsner? No, Pearls and Irritations. It's a blog. Oh, Pearls by, and Irritations. Um, okay. Okay, I'll look it um, up. Yeah. You, I'll, send the, I'll send the link. Let me get it. Because I, I, I'd be curious what uh, PR campaign they're undertaking in Canberra to generate more support among the youth for America. I'll, I'll, I'll send the link to it in the call-in chat. Okay. Um, well, one thing I wanted to ask you, since you're in Australia... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month, around a month ago now. The AUKUS, this is what I'm getting into. Well, the AUKUS, but, but, but they had that newspaper propaganda offensive. Yeah, that's where what like I was complaining about. The clock is ticking that, that, was, that was written by two fellows of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. This is in multiple days in a row in the major capital city newspapers. This is our Sydney, this is our Sydney Morning Herald and... Washington Post. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is out New York Times and Washington Post. I tweeted out the, like, the, uh, in... the, the screenshots of the front pages because it was it was absurd. I've never even seen anything like that it in was, the U.S. And like like um right um and uh the the issue is is that it's completely absurd and they're calling for national service for, and the draft for young people to be reinstated effectively and this is something we have not had since Vietnam. Yeah, and well. <laughs> First of all, the, for me. The, 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 the fact that Australia got roped into Vietnam in the first place is sort of, I mean, I, I, sh- I need to revisit it's the history ridiculous. of that. I'm not even that familiar with it. Yeah, because um, that's, that's not taught to American students at all. In like when you learn about the Vietnam War. We have fought to... every single major conflict since the Federation of Australia in 1901. And yeah. something I find funny is that our constitution, it's British law. It's like the, the Australian Commonwealth Act, 1901. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I, I always find that funny because I've always detested um, that we, we do not – because our head of state, it's, it's King Charles III. The third. Right. right. Wasn't, there, is, uh, wasn't, never... there, uh, wasn't there talk about once the Queen died, maybe having some sort of referendum to change the – This happens every few years, right? They'll say, let's have a republic again, and it's never going to happen. It's just not. Really? Why not? Like, just, there's not enough will for it or not enough interest? It's just – people don't care enough. Yeah, I just like because like, it really doesn't. It doesn't matter it. functionally. It's just that the Liberal Party is against it, and, and they're our, um, they're like a, a more right wing party to everyone listening. Right, right, yeah, yeah. But um, it's people. Abbott, just like, he was my favorite. It's, just not, it's like in Canada, um, like they're just not a big movement for it. It used to be big under Paul Keating and uh, yeah. Bob Hawke, Gough Whitlam. But well, Paul Keating, re- Paul Keating reemerged over the August stuff. I was, the, the, I was the, the riveted. National, well, he's always been like. A I listened. I watched that whole thing. Time. That was great. The, yeah, it's it's so great. Uh, they're fucking because he need like he, he um and and they always like he's very respected in the media. Like like they call him Mister Keating. But the journalists you know, who were like, questioning him, they were also pathetic. They were like, it was these twenty nine year old smug, you know, know it all people. And I hate them. They were horrible. <laughs> 
And I, you know, I, I, I say that you know, I'm, you know, technically I'm a journalist, but like I can't, I don't loathe anyone more than those types of journalists. I don't even know how exactly to pinpoint what they are, but you could just, you know, it when you the see it. It's just the earth, worse. That, yeah, yeah. Well, and, the but, media in Australia, it's most of it's owned by News Corporation, and that's not an Australian company; that's an American right. company. And Murdoch. Like Rupert Murdoch, he gave up his uh, Australian citizenship so he could own an American television station, Fox News Channel. Um, well, who, who's the who, who, what's the what's the parent company of those um, newspapers that ran the the red uh, the that's, alarmist? Uh, that's Channel Wars. Nine, and that's um, that's owned by the it's the CEO and owner, I believe, is the former treasurer Peter Costello. He was under John Howard, and John Howard was responsible for Australian involvement. In but that's on News Corp. Iraq. No, it's not. But but the majority of the newspapers in Australia are News Corp, and they're very very anti-China. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, like, uh, this like tabloid trash, like this, like it's it's like the Sun, New York Post sort of trash, sort of. Yeah, yeah. You know, like not high, like the the Sydney. I would compare the nine newspapers more like New York Times, Washington Post. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. A lot more which, which is why it was all the more jarring that they coordinated this propaganda offensive. It wasn't yeah. just the, it wasn't just the tabloid alarmist sort of uh, yeah and, and yellow, like, yellow journalism sort of, stuff. And this was it was written, you know, yeah. And this was written but, but, by did you did you see did you see the journal whoever the editor is of one of the newspapers who sort of engineered it? He was interviewed about like the journalistic uh, logic behind it, and he was like claiming, "Oh, we stand by our journalism." And I was just saying because he was it's getting criticized. Journalism, the key. What journalism did you do? You you handpicked a bunch of. This is something fake national security experts, and then had them prognosticate. There Would you no like journalism. to know who those experts are? They're they're fellows in the Australian. They're like yeah. top advisors, Australian Strategic Policy Institute. That's registered with the Commonwealth Attorney General's Office, which is like the federal government. Yeah. Um, they're registered as foreign agents of the U.S. State Department, whose goal it is to influence Australian policy. They're lobbyists. They're yeah, and they have weapons, the and they have uh, def- uh, weapons manufacturer funding. I think I saw General Dynamics. You know. Uh, BAE uh, Bo- and so uh, Raytheon, Boeing, and yeah, because Bo- I've had um, I've had those people from that exact think tank or you know quasi governmental entity. They've gone after me over Ukraine stuff. They have, they have like this whole OSINT open source intelligence sort of uh, wing where they you know they basically just troll like belling cats and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, the OSINT, I think it's cool, but it's just it's just completely abused to like make um, insane corrections, right? It's fine. Like I mean, it's, 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 in theory, it's fine. To do crazy stuff. But in it's theory, it's fine. Make, yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Like I, I, I had no self control. Sorry, no. It's it, yeah, no, to OSINT, make crazy <laughs> conclusions. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, OSINT in theory is like a worthwhile tool you could see being useful. But I don't. I instinctively don't trust anyone who like self describes as some big OSINT aficionado. Like they craft their identity around it. That's just. An automatic indication to me that they're that they're involved in some like sleazy defense think tank academic well, sort yeah. of uh, complex. It's crazy, um, but um, this this um, this issue, and I, I'm I'm scared because um, the fo- the former foreign minister of Australia, Bob Carr, he was under Kevin Rudd, I believe. Um, he wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, same newspaper, that he thinks that. Because of this submarine deal, which we pay, we pay three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars or something 
so we can become a nuclear target. He thinks that if, if there's ever direct conflict with US and China, that Australia will have no choice um, and the Prime Minister will have to deploy Australian troops there. And, you know, like this is crazy shit they're doing. Like, yeah, like the, there's, in, there's in, no the, in the newspaper feature thing, the quote-unquote experts, they were declaring that it's already been decided that the Australia will go, will go to war. It's not even a matter for debate that once the US and China enter a conflict, automatically uh, Australia is party to it. Like, the, the public doesn't even get to weigh in. Yeah, and because the thing is that they've always wanted to control Australia. They've had, they've had, um, the, the former Prime Minister, um, there was Gough Whitlam, I mentioned him, he was ousted in a US-backed coup, and he was the one who ended the draft for Vietnam. He was the one who wanted to remove a US military base that was, which is like the heart of U.S. intelligence in the East. Well, wait, wait. There was right. a U.S.-backed coup in Australia? Why do I not know about that? Yeah, the, um, there's a, read the book by John Pilger. It is called A Secret Country, and it goes into it. But um, basically a CIA officer at this intelligence base was bragging that they put like a Pinochet coup. I think the exact word, I, 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 I don't have the book on me, so not because I have the e-book. Cause, but... Um, I have it bookmarked somewhere. It's like it's like a Chile coup is what they brag. Right. Well, I just I like, pulled out the Wikipedia for Go Whitlam, so I'll start there. <laughs> but the Wikipedia, it's, they don't mention it. They just say, oh, he theorized about it because it never mentions in the book the, the CIA officer that bragged. And there's this other, like, recent, more recent leak, the Palace Papers, which is the leak between the, uh, the Queen and the Governor General at the time, basically coordinating it. And it's very unconstitutional. It's interesting because uh, around that same time, uh, Harold Wilson, and the UK this prime minister, around but uh, this around the same time because this was because Go Whitlam was he was prime minister from seventy two seventy five, exactly that same at exactly that same time, Harold Wilson, the prime minister of the UK, mm-hmm. um, he, he was ousted in what is widely thought to have been like an extra legal maneuver as well. I don't think it was um, to do with the U.S., but it, it also intersected with the Vietnam War because he was opposed to. Committing well, British troops. The, the big issue wasn't Vietnam because that was kind of winding down, I believe, at the time. Was it? I, I don't know Vietnam that well. Seventy-five was the um, final evacuation of uh, Saigon, I believe. I yeah. So um, it, it was around the time it was winding down, so it wasn't as heinous to end the draft. Right. It was the U.S. military base that they wanted removed, and he wanted to nationalize the mines, and that's like six trillion dollars. Australia would be six trillion dollars, which as he nationalized the mines. Um, hmm. And he, he well, did all this shit. And, and, in, and in more recently, in 2010, there was this Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, and what they did is yeah. that he was... Um, he, he's now US ambassador. I nearly... I was supposed to interview Kevin Rudd a few weeks ago, but then he claimed that he's he was awesome. too busy because... He claimed that he was too busy because he was getting ready to become ambassador to the US. He... he well, he is now, um, but... They, they backed a no, 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 yeah, in the Labour Party he, against he is, him. He's a genuine... I like Kevin Rudd. I, mean, I don't know that I would fully agree with him on everything politically, but he actually does seem to be one of the few public I figures don't. who is a bona fide expert on China, like in that he's fluent in the language. He, has like he a is. He's very, very smart. And I don't agree with everything he says, but there is this book you must read, The Avoidable War. Yeah, I've seen it. I, I've actually planned on reading it. Um, I have it on my queue. Um, but... That he's like a he's into real politic, right? Which because I'm young, I haven't had my spirit crushed, so I still think that we have a chance. <laughs> How old are you? But um, speak eighteen. How old are you? 
Oh, geez. Hey, well, good for you because I, I feel like you um, – are you uh, unusual amongst your peers for be- having a full – having like a uh, interest in this sort of suite of issues? Yes, I, I was I was mentioning this. Uh, Will, you seem to have dropped out. Will, you there? Will? Uh-oh. Well, uh, unfortunately, Will has been overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup in Australia, but hopefully we can remain in contact, and he's not been... Uh, he's not been sent to a secret CIA prison quite yet. All right, sorry about that, Will. Uh, interesting call, though. Um, and come back at some point, if you'd like. Oh, what? Hey, Jenny. Oh, what? Hello? Sounds like oh, he's Will, back. Will's, bring him back. I he's back. I want to hear what he has to say, too. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Jenny, I'll bring you up next. Um, I'm in the middle of nowhere. All right, Will, you're back. Hey. Yeah, you're back. <laughs> where oh, where are you? In the outback? Alone. With sorry. kangaroos and stuff? Um, are you in the outback with, like, kangaroos? Yeah. No, not with kangaroos. I'm in, like... No, no. I live in the city. I'm a city slicker. I'm sorry. But uh, where did I cut off? So you're not in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 but where did I cut off? Like Kevin, Ru- Kevin, Rudd, Kevin Rudd's book. Kevin Rudd's book. Kevin Rudd's book. But you asked me, am I like outcast among my peers? After oh, that? yeah, yeah. Are you yeah, Are you seen as sort of like a uh, aberration amongst your peers? Like, is there? Do you have people in your my, age my... group who are interested in this sort of stuff? They, they, they all think there's not one person who agrees with me in my, in my high school. Actually, there was some oh, you're still in high school. That, that were on board, huh? I, you know I I'm going to come to. I'm going to come to your. Ago. I'm going to come to that high school myself and teach them a lesson. I'm on the next. <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm, the, I'm on the next plane. Come down to Brisbane. I'll I'll, I'll show you around. There's yeah, not much to show though. But, um, so when you say they don't um, agree with you, what do you mean exactly? Like what is the disagreement? Well, they say, oh, like uh, China is awful. It's authoritarian. Because what they do, right? They make it look like these other countries are like the worst thing in the world. It's like a digit. It's like a, a whole concentration camp. You can't say anything. You can't do anything. But if you go to these places, you'll know that it's very normal. It's just like Australia. It's just like America. People are there. They go to work every day. They do. They got shit to do. They have lives. They they have friends that they go. Have out you been to China? With. No, I've been to Hong Kong with, with my dad right. on a layover for a few days. And that's like, but that's not like mainland China. Well, the whole thing about authoritarianism, it's like a trap that they said argumentatively. I would almost reject the premise of that, oh, it's authoritarianism, therefore it's bad, therefore it's a threat. First of all, authoritarianism no, but, is an incredibly no, nebulous concept. And, 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 and even if it is, even if it does have authoritarian features, which I don't necessarily doubt, that doesn't automatically imply some sort of existential threat that society needs to mobilize around combating and potentially spark World War III. And that's um, ludicrous. I, I got into a lot of arguments about this with my legal studies teacher because we had like a whole year on human rights. She called my parents to tell, tell them I was conspiracy <laughs> theory. <laughs> did did, did um, you conclude that human rights are fake? Well, I, I, it's a meme, kind of, because there's no way of enforcing all these um, charters and everyone interprets them differently. I've always advocated for a constitutional amendment to the Constitution of Australia to have a Bill of Rights because we don't have free speech. We, it's very censored, censored in this country, mm-hmm. very censorious, and I've always wanted that to be 
have at least some theoretical protection. And even countries which have free speech in their constitution, it's not like the First Amendment, which is like a gold standard. And even that's under attack. Yeah, well, and that, that is one of the genuinely laudable aspects of American governance that is historically unique in the, among the rest of the world. I mean, it is the, probably the most useful and, you know, overriding guarantor of speech that you, pretty, you could find pretty much anywhere across societies. Because I got into pol- politics after the Snowden story. I was like 10 when that dropped or something. How could you? Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. How could you get, quote, get into politics at 10 years well, old? That almost sounds like well, a far- I was, I'm always, <laughs> That's hilarious. Not, not like get into it. Like, I know it sounds ridiculous, but like, just like understanding it, like understanding it more and stuff. Because I yeah. remember like seeing the YouTube videos, because I've always been this sort of like nerd kid who's on his computer all the time. So it's like when you see like. I got to, uh, I should, like, oh, I should, uh, I should set, I should set you up with Greenwald then. You could reminisce. <laughs> I emailed him about an internet censorship story. If you heard of this website called Kiwi Farms, yeah, I know of it, um, it which is censored. like insane, tro- I, insane messaged... trolling stuff. Well, didn't didn't they? Didn't they? Didn't they cut off? Didn't they cut off the hosting service? They cut off the hosting service, but that's easy to replace, right? They cut off the ISP, right? Because when a hosting service, like when Amazon wants to connect their servers to the internet, they go to a country, uh, the company like Cogent Communications. Hurricane Electric, Zao, Telia Sonora. It's like these are like the these are the people that own the physical cables in the ground, right? Or the connection and the the backbones yeah, yeah, of the exactly. internet, pretty much. And they basically got banned from all the internet backbones. Yeah, and it was like a precedent um, setting. It was a it was like a it was a precedent. Uh, it's, it's, breaking it's, I've action, never seen right? even like the neo-Nazi website Daily Stormer, right? And this is a website yeah, like yeah. they people say it's a trolling website. They've never allowed trolling, and it's like. If you browse this website, you can tell it's very against the culture of the board to ever troll someone. You just have to watch. In Kiwi Farm? Well, isn't – well, I mean, granted, I don't have a, a hugely in-depth familiarity with Kiwi Farms. I think I've, you know, maybe browsed it. But I thought the idea of why it was so uh, pernicious was that they organized, like, targeted harassment on there or something against, like, their enemies. Is that right? No, no, no. It's very against the culture of the I mean, board to do that. It's probably wrong. Meaning that they target people off the site, but they con- they congregate there. I don't, I don't know. You're, exactly. not allowed, you're not allowed to talk. You're not, if you do it, you're not allowed to talk about it, and you'll get banned. To my like, I've talked. So to is, this, is the site up and running now, or is it out of action? Is the site up and running now? It is, but it's like running. But I know that I because yeah, it's it's running through someone who I personally know. <laughs> it's like oh. a, who's been like arrested. Who's like an internet hacker person. <laughs> Oh, it's, but it's like a very dodgy thing. And the thing is that with the internet, it needs to be accessible to be publicly available. You shouldn't have to like go through these fucking hoops where you're like doing some dodgy ass ghetto setup. It needs to be accessible. It, anyone should be able to make a website and post stuff on it. it, it, it that's how it should be. If, if if it's not like that, then there's no free internet. So it's and it's never going to be that way ever again because they're trying to regulate it. Like um, we have like online safety bills and stuff. So the internet's fucked. Yeah, I can't remember what, what site it was now, but it was an American website that I'm pretty. It was like after after January sixth, maybe it was, or after like one of these, you know, melodramatic Daily uh, uh, turning. Was it Daily Stormer? The one of the hosting uh, services was pressured into withdrawing Cloudflare. service for the first time. Cloudfire, that's right. Cloudflare. That's right. Cloudfire. It's not a hosting service. Um, was that it's, after it's January sixth? D- it's DDoS protection. Okay. It was Charlottesville because. 
Um, you know that right. woman that got ran off? At, at, first, at first they well, resisted the pressure, right? But then they gave in. Yeah, well, because he's afraid of his employees because it's a San Francisco company. And uh, the right. CEO is, is like a libertarian. It's like a, in a very liberal company. Matthew Prince? Yes. I, I'm... Yeah, yeah. How do you know the guy who runs Kiwi Farms? Is he else? Is he? I don't he... know the guy who runs Kiwi Farms. I know the guy who runs the ISP because oh, I've yeah. always been. How do you like, know that guy? Um. Well, I used his hosting service for a while because it was cheap. You have a website? Yeah, I, I have my. It's it's William GG. You can find it there. It's William not up at the GG. Moment. Yeah. Okay. It's not up. <laughs> is it up? It's not up. It doesn't matter. It no, just it's not like a link to my email. Okay. Okay. It doesn't mean no. That's probably not. What good kind of then. what kind of, what kind of what, what kind of domain name is GG? <laughs> is that a country? Um, it's it's, it's the uh, it's like the Guernsey Islands. Or it's off the it's off the Brit- It's in the British Channel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, right. It's in the in the uh, English Channel, uh, next to the Isle of Jersey, which is the namesake yes, of the state um, that I'm that's, in. That's uh, an Isle of Man as well. <laughs> well, Isle, Isle of Man's. De- I, well, Isle of Man. I want to go to the Isle of Man actually because they have. Is it, uh, no, Isle of Man's Irish Channel. Sorry. Yeah, that's the Irish Channel. It's more, it's more north, but um, and they have I'm like. Not, uh, I'm not good on my uh, geography. Yeah, I I've, I go to I'm, I'm in and out of the UK a lot, so I I familiarize myself with the geography. Mm. The, yeah, Isle of Man wow, is. Uh, right. They have they have like a big uh, motor sport annual thing that people yeah, flock there for yeah yeah like uh what is that yeah you wouldn't expect it because it's like this stupid little island it's that you have like to, a, it's you know, like um, well it's easy to travel to because i it's like it's and, like they speak, and they speak and they you know the language they speak there manx m-a-n-x do they that's like they the, that, that's english. like the indigenous like well they speak english obviously as well but the indigenous like like what in, in wales they speak welsh but also english in isle of man it's this very parochial accent called Manx, M-A-N-X. Oh, um, someone in the chat, they said, okay, you can check out IPFS. Um, What's um, IPFS? It's like a decentralized um, file. It's, it's a decentralized file distribution server. The issue is that it's slow as fuck and it only works with static content. So like only an image or something you can host up. You can't host like a proper interactive website. You wouldn't be able to recreate like a forum or something or an image board or something like that. Get your William.gg up because I I want to I want to see what uh, the Isle of Guernsey has to offer for. Uh, no, uh, well, no, it's a photo <laughs> of me in my email address. <laughs> well, nothing comes up. Nothing loads. Um, it doesn't matter because there was nothing on. Maybe I'm not typing. Do you have to? Maybe I'm not typing it in right. No, no, yeah. it's, it's not up. I, I didn't know if it was up, but it had nothing on it anyway other than, like, the profile picture I have now on call-in, it had a picture of me, my full, like, a, a hi, I'm William, email me here at my email. Yeah. Well, I have a personal <laughs> website, too, actually. I hardly use it for anything, but if you're curious, mctracy.com. <laughs> wouldn't you um, Wouldn't you want to use that domain name for your Substack stack, though? Cause uh, no, like, I mean, I just use the, I just use, no. I, I mean, I could. If you ever want to switch... <laughs> yeah. If you want to, like, but the thing is, I, it, maybe if I had mtracy.com, maybe. But 
that wasn't available, so I had to throw my. You can always buy it off like the asshole that owns it, but then they're gonna ask <coughs> for like a million dollars. Yeah, I could. Actually, mtracy.com is available. On, onto right the now. Fucking... Maybe I need to get that. Oh shit! Buy it! Buy it quick! Someone fucking in the chat's listening. They're gonna snipe it. Oh, hey, stand down. <laughs> but did you read I the article? I can also get mtracy.co.uk. Uh, oh, you're no, British wait, now. Pull it up. My girlfriend is English. She she's appeared on this column before, and she caused a stir because. Okay. <laughs> but did you read the Did you read the article I sent in the call in chat about the youth pro- like the program to get support for the U.S. among the youth? Uh, let me pull it up. How many minutes ago? Um. Shit, we've been talking for how long? I'll post it again. Fuck, dude, I didn't realize we'd be talking for that long. I have no self-control, so people can goad me into staying on this stupid thing for, like, hours. When I, I, was, when I was in Germany at no, it's the great. security it's conference, I, ha- I literally did five and a half hours because I was being peppered with questions. Hey, I, I like it. It keeps me on my toes about, like, my position on that quote-unquote anti-war rally that they had in D.C., which was not an anti-war rally, but let's not get into that. But that was really the emotions were raging. Well, you got to try, yeah. man. Like I, um, I went to like a, um, I, I I went to some events which were like which like um in Brisbane because there's no like proper anti-war movement in Australia. Like um, neither is there here. It was like in my city, which is a major. It's a capital city, um, Brisbane. There was no anti-Orcus yeah. event at all, and so like you got to you got you got to go to the city of the. You got to at least try. Of state of Queensland, yeah. Brisbane is the Brisbane is the capital of the state of Queensland. Is that right? Yes, and the Queensland is two point five times the size of Texas. So suck on that, Seppo. Oh, there, you know, you will actually find people in Texas who are genuinely offended by that because they think everything's bigger in Texas is like a metaphysical statement of I've truth. I've been to Texas before. <laughs> really? I've been to. Why have um, you been to Texas? My dad. Um, so your dad just ferries you all over the world? See, I, my no, dad never. My dad. My dad would never. My dad never takes me anywhere. Well, uh, the the Hong Kong thing I mentioned earlier—that was a layover on the way to Texas. <laughs> so, were you in Hong Kong before or after Two the days. whole every, everything? Every all the shit hit the fan. This this is um, when was that? Like twenty eighteen. It that was like, 20, tw- it was 20, like it was 2020, wasn't it? 2019 or 2020? 2020, no, because they would have been under lockdown. 2019, I think it was. Okay, then, then uh, mine was just before that. Yeah, t- 2019, 2020 pr- s- protests. But did you read? Did June you 9th, 2019 article? is when the lot. I, I, I can't find the article. I can't find where you post. Oh, did you repost it? Yes. <laughs> Oh, Firestarter. Okay, I wasn't. I was looking for the wrong thing. Okay, John Mendu. All right, <laughs> the senior advisor and principal author of our defense strategic review is the director of the United States United States oh. Studies Center. Wait, am I am I looking at the wrong thing? Wait, maybe no. This, this is, is the wrong Pearls, article. Pearls and irritations. No, but uh, this, I was trying to get the one that mentions like the youth program thing. No, this doesn't mention this doesn't mention youth program. 
Um, okay, hold on. I'm like illiterate. Sorry. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I don't good believe at this. that. <laughs> You're at least literate. I'm trying to find this. Hold on. I'm pearls dropping out again, and... aren't I? What the hell does pearls and irritations mean? What does that say? Uh, youth America. Okay, I can't find it. Fuck. I don't. Wait, can I? Maybe you I don't know. It. I don't know. It's a strange name. It's a public policy journal out of Watson's Bay, Australia. Um. Okay. Maybe I'm making that up. Shit. I can't find. It. Is it Easter? Easter message? Power control? Autocracy? Uh, empire? It's written by the former chief of staff. What's his name? No, 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 no. It was a few days ago. I can't, What's remember, the I can't name? find it. I've been trying to find it, and that's not the one. I, I, I can't remember. I'm, I'm, I'm illiterate. All right. Well, we're, calm down. We'll, we'll work it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to find it. I mean, I'm actually interested in this website now, maybe I'll, so I'll, I'll browse around and see if I can find it. Um, all right. Well, well, stay in touch. You, uh, it's it's you very good. If you want to learn about Australia are... and China, read, read um, Pearls and Invitations. Yeah, yeah, I will. All right, well, uh, come I, back. I, I, you we'll responded to me chatting. on Twitter um, the other, uh, today. Oh, I did? No, no. Did I? Sure. Uh, Negatively or positively? Think, yeah, uh, or neutral? Yeah, my name is Riverview Avenue on Twitter. Um, no, 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 no. We were talking Avenue. about the trans children thing, about like trans children being like the number one issue. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the number okay, one yeah. issue in the world. Oh, yeah, that was through um, uh, Caitlin. Uh, um, I was the account of Riverview right? Avenue. Yeah, yeah, no, I, re- I recall the exchange. No, no, it was a response, um, yeah. <laughs> no, you're, 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 have, a, you're, have a very nice weekend, was... enjoy Easter if you... Yeah. Well, let's just, I mean, you, so your, well, your point there my was... My point was that, that we, should even stop, if, we should shut up about even, it because it doesn't matter, for now. Right, well, but, but then you, you do have to, if you're going to be sort of honest about it, I do think it's necessary to at least concede that there is a trend that is observable in the population that in just a sociological or anthropological sense would potentially merit some scrutiny or interest or whatever as a, just a notable thing that's occurring. But that doesn't mean it's yes. therefore warranted to ha- like become so f- hell-bent in your fixation on it that it's like all you ever think about and fight about online and like you ignored that the world is fairly rapidly accelerating in its lurch toward uh, global cataclysm. <laughs> that was my point. Yeah, well, yeah, my, my personal position, I, I'm really against like a medical physical intervention because gender only exists insofar as we can see it. It's a social thing. It, it exists purely in our minds, right? I mean, right. like, it, well, at least that's a theory. There is your sex, which is like your physical trait, and there is your gender, which you're is, like, against the it. Meaning, you think the like government should thing. prohibit the ability of people to obtain that medical intervention? Uh, minors, I, I think, maybe. I probably, well, we're violating I, your I own rule, and we're talking about it when we should not be talking about it because it's not. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> but my point is that I, I, for all I know about it, I. Do not think it, it pollutes public discourse. And that's the discourse. Sorry, that is the word. It's pollution because it's bullshit. Because <laughs> it, it it's really like in in proportion, it's inconsequential, and it's pollution because they all they try to make you think, oh, that's all that matters. So you're cheering on someone like Lindsey Graham because um, you agree with him, and he's going to 
you know, send all your children to war so we, so they can die anyway. The proportion of the population that actually has any involvement in these procedures is very low. But as I pointed out to you, the trend does appear to be one of it's, something that approximates exponential growth. Yeah. So that is at least worth being yeah. mindful of. And I, I think people are, people are not going to accept if you just say, oh, just flat out ignore that. I think you're better off making a proportionality argument. Of course, of course. The, the article I linked in from Reuters, it's worth reading if you ever get the time. Like, um, was this from like last fall read. around the about, uh, U.S. insurance data? I think I read October, that. October, October from yeah. Okay, it, it was interesting. I, I read article. that. Yeah, I read that. Um, yeah, I read that. Of course, yeah, that's not going to be a comprehensive a, a collection of data. Yeah, yeah. No, it was that, that was a good article. Um, and that article, uh, you know, bolstered the idea oh, that no, there was Jenny some had to sort go to of sleep. Oh no. <laughs> oh. Well, I oh, mean, because so Jenny's, Jenny's a sane person. It's one I'm not sure what time zone she's in. And nobody should emulate me with my insane, you know, personal habits where I spend hours and hours banging on, on this uh, app and then doing other crap that really is not conducive to a uh, sustainable, you know, waking and sleeping schedule. So anyway, all right, well, well let's... Uh, Let's leave it there. Keep in touch. Right. Have, have a good call. Easter. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, call them again if, if, if there's an uh, interesting thing to bring East, up. Easter I'm not so much into, but, you know, you, you enjoy that if, you, if you're into it. Um, I, I'm in, you into holidays, though, right? You're into holidays? Um, <laughs> Easter, not Easter. Not even that I'm, like, some sort no, of no, uh, iconoclast just, just like, and anti-religious. But, but Easter was like, well, no, I'm not going to take a break. I mean, Easter was my least favorite favorite holiday as a kid because it's like the least enjoyable one it's like mostly just sort of like a religious obligation of a dogma that i didn't buy into um and so it's not like I mean, christmas is a secular holiday right so of course i'm going to celebrate christmas but easter it's a lot more like an optional one and because you know like the whole resurrection story and whatever it's not really a animating force in my uh metaphysics i uh i tend to sort of uh skip that one but at that said, if people are into Easter, I, uh, I join you in wishing them a happy one. You know, I wish I could celebrate Passover because I'm socially and culturally Jewish, as you might know, um, because everybody assumes that I'm Jewish. Uh, I aspire to be Jewish. And so part of the reason I don't celebrate Easter is because I resent that Passover is not an option available to me. But, and now, and now I sound absolutely crazy and I'm on a... I'm, I'm devolving into incoherence. Yeah, but but this all right, weekend, well. so enjoy the weekend then. Have a good one. It's been great right, talking to you. Bye bye. It's it's very very interesting. All right, likewise. Bye bye.